4: this one from julian nova and it says i on nineteen ninety nine i had the great pleasure of hearing you read an excerpt from ralph ellison's juneteenth the theme of the excerpt concerned a white youth bliss who had been nurtured by a black woman who raised him but who as an adult betrayed the maternal connection because of their blackness you read so beautifully and with such feeling that i sensed that the theme of white betrayal of black women who had loved them as children struck a nerve in you would you please comment
0: it does and, and still." Um, I think there are several references to it in um, some of my books Um, because it's such an unnatural thing. I could say the same thing about not black-white relations, but wet nurses, you know, that were so common in England and in France where women of a certain class sent their children away to be nursed by strangers and brought back when they were you know, sort of housebroken, so to speak. Uh, so that passed along into the culture with black and white relations being the focal point because the wet nurses were slave women. So you're thinking as a writer, well, how, does, how must that feel? So you think about it yourself. I've had children. I've breastfed them. Suppose I were in a position where I, one of my jobs was, in addition to my own children, I had to feed other children. And it wouldn't be a problem for me. Or any woman. But if that child that I breastfed at 12 or 13 was given the power to beat, rape, or sell me, uh, that's, that's, that's different. Uh, because you have nurtured, fed, and kept alive this person and loved it. It's hard to nurse a child and not love it, or at least, you know, feel that care. So to have that human being become this other thing. There are incredible stories in collections of slave narratives about what slave women did when that happened. Um, There's a story of a woman who spilled milk in the barn, and her mistress sent the son in to beat her because she wasted the milk. And maybe some other things had happened, but for her, it was just the last straw. And she looked at him, and she remembered what she'd been to him. And she took the stick away from him that he was going to beat her with, and she just beat him. Well, she had to leave, so she had to run away. And she lived in a cave for months with her young daughter. Bringing her food Uh, until, and she, you know, there's these incredible stories where they just, you know, you're taking your life into your own hand when you respond that way. But I think if you hear that story and think of it as not a slave, but as you doing it, how does it make you feel? Not her, not that mother, but you or your mother. Your mother did that. Then you get the sense of what people are made of and what they're liable to do and how distorted uh, that kind of oppression uh, is when it distorts human behavior so wildly and so violently.
2: Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, October 3rd, 2019. So I have been told this is our sixth study session on Toni Morrison's Tar Baby, published in 1981. We are picking up on chapter seven. This is a pretty momentous spot in the book where we stopped at. From last week, we had the huge Christmas brawl. Ondine, black female, spills the beans Uh, At the Christmas party uh, about Margaret Street, white woman, her boss, uh, and saying that she abused her white child, Michael, when he was a baby, uh, that she burned him. and did all these violent, cruel things uh, to him when he was young. Uh, Mr. Street is listening like, what is this true? What, what, what? All of this starts uh, with the argument where uh, Valerian has fired uh, two of the black help because they were stealing apples. This really upsets Uh, And things go from there, but we end up with a violent brawl between Andine and Margaret Street. Uh, All of that concludes, and then uh, Jadine and Son are talking together in bed afterwards, but that's how Chapter 7 ends. So, wow. Lots to look forward to uh, at the beginning of this week. The opening segment featured Toni Morrison, uh, an interview that she did uh, some years back, way back in the 90s. And I thought it was important because she talked about that sense of betrayal uh, for black people uh, for centuries when they have cared for and looked after white children uh, only to watch them become racist. Uh, one of their racist tormentors, in fact. Uh, and she said that she talks about that theme uh, in a number of her books. So we'll be on the lookout to see if it's manifest in Tar Baby. Uh, with that, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. This is the grandcester Tony Morrison's Tar Baby, audio segment number one.
4: Chapter 7 The black girls in New York City were crying, and their men were looking neither to the right nor to the left. Not because they were heedless or intent on what was before them, but they did not wish to see the crying. Crying girls split into two parts by their tight jeans screaming at the top of their high, high heels, straining against the pull of their braids and the fluorescent combs holding their hair. Oh, their mouths were heavy with plum lipstick, and their eyebrows were a thin gay line, but nothing could stop their crying, and nothing could persuade their men to look to the right or look to the left. They stoked their cocks into bikini underwear and opened their shirts to their tits, but they walked on tippy-toe through the streets, looking straight ahead, and Son looked in vain for children. He couldn't find them anywhere. There were short people and people under 12 years of age, but they had no child's vulnerability, no unstuck laughter. They cracked into the M2 bus like terrified bison running for their lives, for fear the school at their backs would grab them and eat them up one more time. It wasn't until he caught the downtown A that he saw what they had done with their childhood. They had wrapped it in dark cloth, sneaked it underground, and thrown it all over the trains. Like blazing jewels, the subway cars burst from the tunnels to the platforms, shining with the recognizable artifacts of childhood. Fantasy, magic, ego, energy, humor, and paint. They had taken it all underground. Pax and Stay High and the three yard boys, Teen, P. Comet, and Popeye. He sat on a bench at the 59th Street station watching the childhood flash by. Now all he needed to know was where were the old people. Where were the Thereses and Gideons of New York? They were not on the subways, and they were not in the street perhaps they were all in kennels. That must be the reason the men walked that way, on tippy-toe, looking neither to the right nor to the left. The old people were in kennels, and childhood was underground. But why were all the black girls crying on buses, in red apple lines, at traffic lights, and behind the counters of Chemical Bank, crying from a grief so stark you would have thought they'd been condemned to death by starvation in the lobby of Alice Tully Hall. Death by starvation in Mikel's, death by starvation on the campus of CUNY, and death by starvation at the reception desks of large corporations. It depressed him, all that crying, for it was silent and veiled by plum lipstick and the thin gay lines over their eyes. Who did this to you? Who has done this thing to you? he wondered, as he walked down Columbus Avenue looking first to the right and then to the left. The street was choked with beautiful males who had found the whole business of being black and men at the same time too difficult, and so they dumped it. They had snipped off their testicles and pasted them to their chests they put the weighty wigs Alma Este dreamed of on their heads and feathery eyelashes on their eyes. They flung sharp hips away to the right and away to the left and smiled sweetly at the crying girls and the men on tippy-toe. Only the Hilton whores seemed to him quiet and feeling no pain. He had tried a little television that first day, but the black people in white face playing black people in face unnerved him. Even their skin had changed through the marvel of color TV. A gray patina covered them all, and they were happy. Really happy. Even without looking at their gray, no-color faces, the sound of their televised laughter was enough to tell him so. Different laughter from what he remembered it to be, "'without irony or defiance or genuine amusement. "'Now all he heard were shrieks of satisfaction. "'It made him shiver. "'How long had he been gone anyway? "'If those were the black folks he was carrying around in his heart all those years, "'who on earth was he? "'The trouble he'd had the night he checked in "'was representative of how estranged he felt from these new people.' The Hickey Freeman suit passed muster easily enough, and he wadded Jadine's $400 in his fist as he approached the desk. The clerk was about to give him a very hard time because, no, he would not be paying with a credit card, and no, no check either. Cash. Two nights. Cash. Son had chosen that line to wait in because the clerk's little pecan pie face looked friendly. Now he realized the boy was in love with his identification badge. Son was surprised at himself. He seldom misjudged people. He thought the love thing with Jadine must have thrown his sensibilities off, derailed his judgment. So he leaned toward the clerk and whispered, "'Brother, do you want to get home tonight? "'This ain't your fucking hotel.' But now he thought it was less an error in judgment than it was being confronted with a whole new race of people he was once familiar with. He was heart-weary when he opened the door to his room, and the purple carpet fairly took his breath away. He wanted her in that room with him, giving him the balance he was losing, the ballast and counterweight to the stone of sorrow New York City had given him. Jadine would lighten up the purple carpet, soften the tooth-white walls, She'd read the room service menu as though it were a private message to them both, and then choose a corner of the room to make love in. They had spent two whole days following the Christmas dinner in or near each other's arms, and the demoralized house never noticed. But they both understood that son had to get out fast, so he used Jadine's ticket and Gideon's passport and split. She was to follow as soon as she could get a flight and had seen what Undine's and Sydney's situation was, whether they would stay or leave. He sat down in a plastic tub chair, rested his arms on the windowsill, and looked down at 53rd Street. How hard this one night's wait would be, shot full already of fallen airplanes and missed connections. Even if he managed to sleep from 6.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m., what would he do with the morning? Refuse to have breakfast until nine, shave long and shower longer till noon when Air France would glide like a crane into Kennedy? Did she say baggage claim or lobby? Or did she say to wait at the hotel? His mouth went suddenly dry with the possibility of losing her in that city. Was he in the right hotel? Was it the New York Hilton or the Statler Hilton? She just said Hilton. There was no way to call and find out without letting Sidney know. He might answer the phone himself, or Undine might, and if they knew she was joining him, they both might try to stop her. He could call Gideon. He tried to remember that hillside hut, but all he could summon were the powder-pink walls And the record player sitting on a shelf. Gideon had no telephone, but messages got to him via a store halfway down the hill that sold rum and meat pies and lent out hair clippers. That was foolish. What could Gideon tell him anyway? He was so angry at the Americans he was actually helping Therese prepare all sorts of potions and incantations for their destruction, just in case there was such a thing as magic after all. And he was quite willing to lend his passport to the man who shared his anger at the Americans. He could not understand why Sun wanted to return to the country too terrible for dying, but he agreed that one black face would look like another and a difference of twenty years would not be noticed in a black man's five-year-old passport. Therese gave Sun, as a going-away present a tiny, dirty bag of good fortune, but he tossed it away. It looked like ganja, and he didn't want to draw any attention to himself at customs. He took what Jadine gave him and left. Now, on the second day of their separation, he would just have to wait and keep on imagining disaster, since his emotions were so young that this heavy, grown-up love made him feel fresh-born, unprecedented, surrounded by an extended present loaded with harm. There was nothing to do. He would have to trust to her city sense to do the right thing and be in the right places. And this time tomorrow, he could smooth back her hair and sweep her eyebrows with his thumb. This time tomorrow, the side teeth in her smile would divert him from what she was saying or laughing at. He loved to watch her eyes when she was not watching his and to listen to the four-four time of her heels. Son sat there wagging his knees back and forth like a schoolboy, not thinking most of the important things there were to think about. What would they do? Where would they go? Live? How would he earn money to take care of her and, later, their children? He smiled at the vigor of his own heartbeat, at the thought of her having his baby watch her. He would watch her stomach while she slept just the way he had when he'd lived like an animal around the house and spent the hind part of the night at her bedside, pressing his dreams into hers. Now those dreams embarrassed him, the mewings of an adolescent brutalized by loneliness for a world he thought he would never see again. There was a future, a reason for hauling ass in the morning no more moment-to-moment, play-it-as-it-comes existence. That stomach required planning. Thinking through a move long before it was made, what would he name his son? Son of Son? He should have thought about that before he left. Perhaps he would have taken things, cash, jewelry, and the passport of a stranger instead of a friend. Instead, he took the clothes, one piece of luggage, and the Bally shoes, and his bottle of Paco Rabanne. He saw it all as a rescue, first tearing her mind away from that blinding awe, then the physical escape from the plantation, his first, hers to follow two days later. Unless... He remembered sitting at the foot of the table, gobbling the food, watching her pour his wine, listening to her take his part trying to calm Andine and Sidney to his satisfaction. Just as she had done the first night when they found him in the closet. He would not look at her then, refused to lock with those mink-dark eyes that looked at him with more distaste than Valerian's had. The mocking voice, the superior, managerial, administrative, clerk-in-a-fucking-loan-office tone she took, gatekeeper, Advance bitch. House bitch. Welfare office torpedo. Corporate cunt. Tar baby side of the road whore trap who called a black man old enough to be her father yard man and who couldn't give a shit who he himself was and only wanted his name to file away in her restrung brain so she could remember it when the cops came to fill out the report. 5'11", maybe six feet, black as coal with the breath and table manners of a rhino. But underneath her efficiency and know-it-all sass were wind chimes, nine rectangles of crystal, rainbowed in the light, fragile pieces of glass, tinkling as long as the breeze was gentle. But in more vigorous weather, the thread that held it together would snap. So it would be his duty to keep the climate mild for her, to hold back with his hands, if need be, thunder, drought, and all manner of winter kill, and he would blow with his own lips a gentle enough breeze for her to tinkle in. The bird-like defenselessness he had loved while she slept and saw when she took his hand on the stairs was his to protect. He would have to be alert, feed her with his mouth if he had to, construct a world of steel and down for her to flourish in, for the love thing was already there. He had been looking for her all his life, and even when he thought he had found her in other ports and other places, he shied away. He stood in her bedroom, a towel wrapped around his waist, clean as a whistle, having just said the nastiest thing he could think of to her. Staring at a heart-red tree, desperately in love with a woman he could not risk loving because he could not afford to lose her. For if he loved and lost this woman, whose sleeping face was the limit his eyes could safely behold, and whose wakened face threw him into confusion, he would surely lose the world. So he made himself disgusting to her, insulted and offended her, gave her sufficient cause to help him keep his love in chains, and hope to gut heads of the bougainvillea, the simple green rage of the avocado, the fruit of the banana trees puffed up and stiff like the fingers of gouty kings, treachery of the sea into a playful gush of water that did exactly what it was told, and why not? Wilderness wasn't wild anymore or threatening. Wildlife needed human protection to exist at all. Stretched out in the water. His eyes closed, he thought of this city that he should have remembered. Where was the wavy seven language on the windows of the butcher shops? The laundries named Hand. What had they done to the Apollo? Where was Michaud's? The awnings on St. Nicholas Avenue? Who were these people on the islands in the middle of Broadway, and where were the trees? There used to be trees. "'Trees coming out of the concrete.' "'But nobody would chop down a tree in New York, "'so he guessed he must have been wrong. "'That must have been some other city he had been memorizing.' "'Jadine sat in the taxi, "'barely able to see over her luggage "'piled in the seat in front of her. "'Unlike the anxiety-ridden man in a Hilton bathtub, "'she wanted to giggle. "'New York made her feel like giggling.' She was so happy to be back in the arms of that barfly with the busted teeth and armpit breath. New York oiled her joints, and she moved as though they were oiled. Her legs were longer here. Her neck really connected her body to her head. After two months of stingless bees, butterflies, and avocado trees, the smart, thin trees on 53rd Street refreshed her. They were to scale, human-sized and the buildings did not threaten her like the hills of the island had, for these were full of people whose joints were oiled just like hers. This is home, she thought, with an orphan's delight. Not Paris, not Baltimore, not Philadelphia. This is home. The city had gone on to something more interesting to it than the black people who had fascinated it a decade ago. But if ever there was a black woman's town, New York was it. No, no, not over there making land-use decisions or deciding what was or was not information. But there, 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 and there. Snapping whips behind the teller's windows, kicking ass at Con Edison offices, barking orders in the record companies, hospitals, public schools. They refused loans at household finance, withheld unemployment checks and driver's licenses, issued parking tickets and summonses, gave enemas, blood transfusions, and please, lady, don't make me mad. They jacked up meetings in boardrooms, turned out luncheons, energized parties, redefined fashion, tipped scales, removed lids, cracked covers, and turned an entire telephone company into such a diamond head of hostility the company paid you for not talking to their operators. The manifesto was simple. Talk shit. Take none. Jadine remembered and loved it all. This would be her city, too, her place, the place she spent a whole summer once in love with Oum, riding the subways looking for his name, first as a talisman, then as a friend, and finally as a lover in the tunnels of New York City. And now she would take it, take it and give it to Sun. They would make it theirs. She would show it, reveal it to him, live it with him. They would fall out of Max's Kansas City at 4 a.m. They would promenade 3rd Avenue from the 50s to Soho. They would fight landlords and drink coffee in the village, eat bean pie on 135th Street, paella on 81st Street. They would laugh in the sex boutiques, eat yogurt on the steps of the 42nd Street Library, Listen to RVR and BLS, buy mugs in Azumas, chocolate chip cookies in Grand Central Station, drink margaritas at Shug's, and shop Spanish and West Indian at the Park Avenue Market. She would look up Don and Betty and Aisha and show him off, her fine frame, her stag, her man. Jadine was so ruddish by the time she got to the Hilton, She could barely stand still for the doorman to take her bags, and when she was checked in and had gotten his room number from information, she did not call him. She took the elevator to his floor and banged on the door. When he opened it, she jumped on him with her legs around his waist, crashing him into the purple carpet. But he insisted on Elo, in spite of the gate and Central Park in the snow they moved into Dawn's apartment, available to them for four months while she was on the coast shooting her seventh pilot, the one that was sure to stick. Four months in that apartment of long and bristling winter days when he slowed her down to the speed of a tulip. Murky New York days when she spun him like a top until he slammed into the headboard. He met her women friends, girls who talked with their shoulders, and found them less than she, He met her men friends, alight with success, almost rich, and found them less than he. Everybody was ridiculous, maimed or unhappy to them, so satisfied were they with their mutual adoration. He thought he would have to stamp the ground, paw it, and butt horns with every male they came in contact with, but he didn't. Her devotion surprised him. She looked only at him and grew her own horns when other men got out of line. She was startled and pleased to discover that his beauty, so sudden and impressive on Ile des Chevaliers, was volcanic in the city. As if waitresses and the eyes of passers-by had not already told her, her own friends altered as well in his presence. Dawn went completely Annie rooney falling all over herself with helplessness and generosity. Betty, who had been into bisexuality for six months, couldn't get back into the closet fast enough when Sun was in the room, and when Jadine told Sun about Betty's range of interests, she was angry enough to fight. Still, he insisted on Elo. Even after she earned $2,500 for four walks and a picture spread all in two weeks, and they bought each other pretty things, even after he worked the bar three afternoons at a fashion show where he got the drinks mixed up, dropped a fifth of gin, and Leonard, the old man who had taken him on as a favor to Jadine, shook his head in disbelief. Son took six bottles of leftover champagne, the $150, and gave it all to her. They got swinging drunk, and Jadine laughed in his ear and called him an unskilled sickle cell anemia motherfucker. They were sober, too, and he let her be still and cry after she told him about her mother and the awful hat she'd worn to the funeral. Too big and grown up for a little girl of twelve. She poured her heart out to him and he to her. Dumb things, secret things, sin and heroism. They told each other all of it, or all they could. He told her what she wished to hear about the war. He could not speak to her or anyone about it coherently, so he told her what she wished to hear. No, he never killed anybody with his hands. Yes, he was wounded, and he showed her a burn on his skin from a burst boiler to prove it. Yes, he had been afraid, although in truth he had not been, or had not been properly frightened. He had laughed, in fact, laughed all over Vietnam because at eighteen Laughter was his only reliable weapon. It was still early in the war, but when trucks sank in mud and grenades exploded too soon, or not at all, laughter was always there, almost always. But one day, it ran out too, as unreliable as his fucked-up M14. The silence in his throat where laughter or tears ought to be blew up in his head, and he was stockaded, busted, and when he refused to re-up, discharged without honor or humor. He went to Elo, married Cheyenne, left the set early when a fistfight broke out, and found his sleeping wife sleeping with a teenager. He was silent then, too, as he ran his car through the house and the bed caught on fire. He pulled them both out, the teenager and Cheyenne, but she didn't make it. He watched her wrappings, but not her eyes, in the hospital, and still no sound. It was hearing about Frisco blowing up in a gas field. Old, no-good Frisco, who used to pay him to clean fish. That did it. His father told him the news when he met him at the bus stop across the state line with money, told him to hurry, told him to write, and told him about Frisco. In a tiny toilet at the rear of the bus, Sun cried like an infant for all the blowings up in Asia. Jadine kissed his hands, and he asked her why she left the States in the first place. She said she always thought she had three choices, marry a dope king or a doctor, model or teach art at Jackson High. In Europe, she thought there might be a fourth choice. They told each other everything yet he insisted on Elo. She listened to him and nodded, thinking anywhere with him would be all right. She was completely happy. After all those sexually efficient men, all those foreplay experts and acrobats, and the nonverbal equipment men, his wildness and fumbling, his corny, unselfconscious joy was like blue sky water. Show me again what it's like to be shining all alone in the sky and he did that, and he did more. Regarding her whole self as an ear, he whispered into every part of her stories of ice caps and singing fish, the fox and the stork, the monkey and the lion, the spider goes to market, and so mingled was their sex with adventure and fantasy that to the end of her life she never heard a reference to Little Red Riding Hood without a tremor. They thought about Ile de Chevalier sometimes. He would say Ali Balin, and she would scream with laughter. She wrote two misleading postcards to Andine and Sydney. Got a short, sorrowful, somewhat accusatory letter back, which she refused to let sour her happiness. Her leave-taking had been difficult. She was dependent at last on that mulatto with a leer sent by Doctor Michelin as the new yard boy. The streets seemed not to notice or mind her going. Only Andine and Sydney were cut up about it. She promised to send for them as soon as they wanted her to, but she had to take this gig, she told them, and she left the two sullen and confused old people at the kitchen table, their hearts steeled against her leaving, even though her New York trip, she said, was vital if she were to arrange things so all three could live together. She couldn't let them know who waited at the Hilton. Sun and Jadine discussed their situation in Dawn's apartment. Undine and Sidney seemed unsure of their jobs, but no steps had been taken to let them go, it seemed. Sun was less than sympathetic to Undine's plight, because she had acted too shuffle-footed, keeping her white lady's secret, Locket was hern, and loving her white lady's baby, Locket it was hern, too and much less sympathetic to Sidney, because in thirty years he had not split Valerian's skull. Eighty percent of both Sidney's and Andine's conversation was the caprice and habits of their master. You still like that old man, don't you? Son asked her. Who? Valerian? Yes. He put me through school, I told you. Nothing in return? No, nothing, never made a pass, nothing. And Margaret, he asked, how did she treat you? Okay. She was more distant than he was, but she was nice to me, nice enough anyway. She wasn't very nice to your folks, he said. Actually, she was, Jadine answered. They both were, at least from what I could see of it. That's why I was so took out that day. I couldn't believe it. They fought like we did in grade school. Wild, he said, thinking of rescue. Really wild. Jadine let two of her fingers do the Charleston in the hair of his chest. We'll get rich and send for them and live happily ever after, she said, and thought it was so, but not right this minute, not today. There was so much nestling to do. They had only two months left in the apartment, but they needed more time. Jadine habitually shaved herself all over, like a fourth-grade Girl Scout, and he finally got around to telling her he wanted somebody here. But they needed time for it to grow. Much more time. Time for her to sketch him right for once. But why sketch when she could touch? Time to make a genuine paella. Time for her to finish the macrame plant holder, for him to fix the dishwasher. They must have been in love. They never once turned on the television. They forgot to buy cigarettes or alcohol, and they didn't even jog in the park. There wasn't a permanent adult job in the whole of the city for him, so he did teenagers' work on occasion and pieces of a grown man's work. He spoke to the men at the Shape-Up halls. The black men told him Baltimore. Everybody works on the docks in Baltimore. Or Galveston, or San Diego, or New Orleans, or Savannah. New York? Not a chance. There was a little pilfering money, that was about all. Some small-time truckers gave him brute work, lookout work, and sometimes he dropped payoffs when asked. But none of it could hold his attention, and one afternoon, while he was helping a trucker unload boxes on Broadway and 101st Street, he heard a commotion in the traffic a young girl with a shaved head and a small ring in her nostril was cursing a man right in the middle of the street. The man, who looked African or West Indian to Son by the innocent confusion in his face, stood watching her in silence. Two or three of his friends leaned on cars, looking elsewhere but obviously waiting for the finale. The girl was in jeans, platform shoes, and a thin sweater. She had the voice of a sergeant, and her language was nasty enough to be memorable. Cars honked at them before swerving into parallel lanes. Pedestrians glanced and then pretended they weren't there. Only sun and people in second-story windows gave them their undivided attention. It was beyond embarrassment. The girl's face was as tight and mean as broccoli. Her forefinger shot bullets into the pavement but inside her narrowed, angry eyes were many other eyes, some of them hurt, some brave, some just lonely, hollow eyes, and her shaved head reminded son of his sister. He listened to the abuse, the catalogue of shame and rage, until the man felt safe enough, his backup team still leaned on the cars, to turn his back on her and walk away none of which dulled the glitter of her nose ring or shut her mouth. She word whipped him on down the street, and probably would have followed him to make it stick, except Sun, made miserable by the eyes inside her eyes, went over and stood in front of her with his arms wide open. She looked at him with hatred older than lava. Come here, he said. She didn't move so he put his arms around her to shield her from the eyes of the second-story people and bank her fire. The girl bucked, but he wouldn't let her go. You're going to freeze to death, he said. Let me buy you a drink. She tipped her forehead onto his chest then and began to cry. Come on, he said. There's a place down the block. Arm around her shoulder, he led the way to a Chinese restaurant and ordered her gin. She drank and began to tell him about the man, but Sun shook his head. Don't, he said. Don't think about it. You got a place to stay? She said not tonight I don't. So he left the job hauling boxes and took her home. All three Nomo, Jadine, and Sun went to a delicatessen where, after much discussion, they bought potato chips, A and W Root beer, and three payday candy bars with Son's last ten-dollar bill. They ate it all in the snow. Cold and giggling, they trudged back to the apartment, where Son and Jadine slept like puppies, and Nomo made off with the change. Yet he insisted on Elo. She agreed, but before they could make plans, she stubbed her big toe on a metal plate bolted to the middle of 6th Avenue. By the time she got home, Her toe was the size of a plum and very painful. Son made a splint for it out of emery boards and the ribbon from a valentine candy box. All night he woke at half-hour intervals to bathe her toe in an Epsom salt solution. In the morning, the swelling had decreased, and he left for work while she slept. When she woke and hobbled to the bathroom, she saw that he had drawn a happily obscene picture under the toilet lid. At his coffee break, he called. How's your toe? Lonely. Mine, too. Come home for lunch. I only have 30 minutes for lunch, baby. Come anyway. I won't be able to get back in time. I'll lose a half day's pay. I'll make it worth your while. He came home and didn't report to work again until she could walk effortlessly. In the meantime, they ate Chinese food in the tub. She read true confession stories to him with appropriate white girl voices and gestures, and he laughed until his chest hurt. She read Césaire to him, and he closed his eyes. She read the sexy parts of the Bible, and he looked at her. Gradually, she came to feel unorphaned. He cherished and safeguarded her. When she woke in the night from an uneasy dream, she had only to turn, and there was the stability of his shoulder and his limitless, eternal chest. No part of her was hidden from him. She wondered if she should hold back, keep something in store from him. But he opened the hair on her head with his fingers and drove his tongue through the part. There was nothing to forgive, nothing to win, and the future was five minutes away. He unorphaned her completely, gave her a brand-new childhood. They were the last lovers in New York City, the first in the world, so their passion was inefficient and kept no savings account. They spent it like Texans. When he had a sore throat so bad he could not speak, she put him to bed and drew a checkerboard on the inside of a Bergdorf box. They played the game with M&M's. It didn't work because the crowns wouldn't stay still, so they used her innovids instead, partly because of their plain surface and partly to keep her from eating the pieces jumped by her kings. She told him straight brandy was good for his throat and made him drink so much so fast he passed out. She didn't like his being unconscious without her, so she drank the rest and passed out with him. He woke first and vomited the strep away. After bathing and dressing, he watched her sleep. She woke unable to see, speak, or move, and he put his huge hand on her forehead until she could. They didn't go to parties anymore. Other people interfered with their view of each other. They stopped going to Shug's and across 110th Street. They stopped laughing and began to smile at each other. From across the room, across the mattress, across the table. Their language diminished to code at times, and at others ballooned to monologues delivered while cradled in the other's arms. They never looked at the sky or got up early to see a sunrise. They played no music and hadn't the foggiest notion that spring was on its way. Vaguely aware of such things when they were apart, together they could not concentrate on the given world. They reinvented it, remembered it through the other. He looked at her face in the mirror and was reminded of days at sea when water looked like sky. She surveyed his body and thought of oranges, playing jacks, and casks of green wine. He was still life, babies, cut glass, indigo, hand spears, dew, cadmium yellow, Hansa red, moss green, and the recollection of a tree that wanted to dance with her. It was difficult to be sober, to take anything other than themselves seriously, but they managed occasionally. She thought about calling her old professor, who said he could always find work for her. But maybe May would be a better time to ring him, after exams. They discussed opening a retail flower shop and boutique that they could call Jade and Son, They discussed bank robbery and an agency for black models. They discussed the New School and Empire State and figured out a way to collect Gideon's unemployment checks. But Jadine was not worried. She had $1,940 in the bank, $5,000 in Paris, and connections. If push came to shove, she'd go permanent with an agency and work her behind off. The check scheme worked. But he had time to pick up just one check before they left hand in hand for Elo. Chapter 8 The air was so charged with pain, the angel trumpets could not breathe it. Rows of them wrinkled on the vine and fell unnoticed right in Valerian's sight line. He sat in the greenhouse, oblivious to everything but 1950 when he heard for the first time his son's song. All the years since, he thought she drank, was a not-so-secret alcoholic. The sleeping masks, the clumsiness, the beauty spa vacations, the withdrawals, the hard-to-wake mornings, the night crying, the irritability, the sloppy candy kisses mother love. He thought she drank, heavily in private, and that was why she took only wine and sherry in his presence. Non-drinkers take real drinks. Only secret drinkers insist on Chablis at every occasion, or so he thought. And he wished it were true. He was devastated knowing that she had never been drunk, had never been out of her mind, never in a stupor, never hung over, never manic from being dry too long. Drunkenness he could take, had taken, in fact, since he'd always believed it. Anything was better than knowing that a pretty, and pretty nice, sober young woman had loved the bloodying of her own baby, had loved it dearly, had once locked herself in the bathroom, a pair of cuticle scissors in her hand, to keep from succumbing to that love. Nothing serious, though. No throwing across the room or out of the window no scalding, no fist work, just a delicious pinstab in sweet, creamy flesh. That was her word, delicious. I knew it was wrong, knew it was bad, but something about it was delicious, too. She was telling him, saying it aloud at the dinner table after everyone had gone. His knees were trembling, and he'd had to sit down again. The negroes had all gone out of the room, disappeared like bushes, trees, out of his line of vision, and left the two of them in the light of the chandelier. She was standing there next to him, her cheek white again after the blow Andine had given her, her hair rumpled but lovely. She was serene, standing there saying it. And he agreed with that, thought it could be, must be true, that it was delicious, for at that moment it would have been delicious to him, too, if he could have picked up the carving knife lying on the platter next to the carcass of the goose and slashed into her lovely valentine face. Delicious. Conclusive and delicious. But he could not concentrate. His knees were trembling, his fingers shuddering on the tablecloth. He didn't want to see them shaking there but he did not want to see her face either. He thought about that, how or whether to stop looking at her and look instead at his hands. He couldn't make up his mind, and he couldn't shift his gaze. But he thought about it while she was saying it. It's funny, but I would see the mark and hear him cry, but somehow I didn't believe it hurt all that much. Mark, she called it. She saw the mark, didn't think it hurt all that much, like a laboratory assistant removing the spleen of a cute but comatose mouse. suddenly he knew exactly what to do. go to him, go to Michael, find him, touch him, rub him, hold him in his arms now He tried to stand, but the spastic legs defied him. I cannot hear any more he said. I can't. She stopped then and looked at him with complete understanding and complete patience. Still he could not stand. She understood that too, and without another word walked slowly out of the room. Later, her footsteps seemed to say, when you are stronger, I will say it to you, share it with you, make it yours as well as mine. Valerian did not move. I will never be that strong, he thought. I will never be strong enough to hear it. I have to die now or go to him. When I move from this table, I will do one or the other, nothing in between. I will never be able to hear it. It was two in the morning when Sidney returned, dressed in robe, slippers, and pajama bottoms. Valerian was sitting in the chandelier light, legs and fingers finally at rest, you should go on up to bed, Mr. Street." Valerian gave a small shake of his head. If he went up, he might never come down again, and if he stood up, it would only be to die or go to Michael. Get some rest, figure things out in the morning, Sidney said. Valerian nodded. The table was precisely as it was when Sidney guided the sobbing undine away. No one had moved a thing while he helped Andine undress, made her lie down, and rubbed her feet until she slept. But he could not sleep at all. The sea spread around him and his wife. They were afloat in it, and if removed from the island, there was nowhere to land. They had no house, no place of their own, some certificates worth a bit, but no savings, just the promises of being taken care of in the will of a man whose wife, his own wife, had slapped. Sidney started to clear the table and stack things on the sideboard. The suspense was too great, so he asked him outright. Mr. Street? Valerian showed him his evening eyes, but did not speak. You going to let us go? Valerian stared at Sidney, trying to focus on then, comprehend the question what me and Andine you going to let us go, Valerian rested his forehead in his hand. I don't know, I don't know anything he said, and Sidney had to be content for now with that answer, spoken faintly, remotely, for Valerian, holding on to his head, fell back into the waxen horror Sidney had tried to penetrate. He was still there at six the next morning. His eyes closed at last. His mind slowed to an occasional thud. He woke because nature required him to, not to die or board an airplane headed for his son, but to go to the bathroom. So he did move from the table, and he climbed the stairs on frail, new legs. Once attending to that call, it was not unthinkable to attend to another, to rinse his face, clean his teeth, brush back his hair with his hands. He took off his shoes and sat on the bed holding them. The picture of the beautiful boy in the laundry under the sink, singing because he could not speak or cry, because he had no vocabulary for what was happening to him, who sang La La La, La La, la instead. That picture had stayed with Valerian all night through fitful sleep, and was there between his stockinged feet in the morning. "'I have to cry about this,' Valerian thought. "'I have got to shed tears about this. "'But not water. Please, God, may they be blood. "'I have to cry blood tears for his wounds. "'But I will need several lives, "'life after life after life after life, "'one for each wound, one for every trickle of blood.' for every burn. I will need a lifetime of blood tears for each one of them, and then more. Lives upon lives upon lives for the, 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 the hurt. The deep down eternal little boy hurt. The not knowing when, the never knowing why, and never being able to shape the tongue to speak let alone the mind to cogitate how the one person in the world upon whom he was totally, completely dependent, the one person he could not even choose not to love, could do that to him. Believing at last, as a little boy would, that he deserved it, must deserve it, otherwise it would not be happening to him. That no world in the world would be imagined, thought up, or even accidentally formed not to say, 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 say created that would permit such a thing to happen. And he is right. No world in the world would allow it. So this is not the world at all. It must be something else. I have lived in it, and I will die out of it, but it is not the world. This is not life. This is some other thing. It comforted him a bit knowing that whatever this was, it was not life. He achieved a kind of blank, whited out, no feeling at all that he hoped would sustain him until the blood tears came, until his heart, revivified, pumped its way along for a single purpose to spill out of his eyes throughout the millennia he would have to live. Until then, then. Margaret awoke very early that morning, having had the dream she ought to have had. It was unspeakable. She rose at once, the wonderful relief of public humiliation, the solid security of the pillory, were upon her. Like the much-sought-after, finally-captured strangler, she wore that look of harmony that in newspaper photos comes across as arrogance or impenitence at the least— the harmony that comes from the relieved discovery that the jig is up. The parts settle back into their proper places, and the strangler sighs, Thank God I didn't get away scot free. She had no idea of what would be next, but that was not a problem to which she had to provide a solution. That was the future. Her job at hand was to reveal the past. Right now, she had to wash her hair hard soap it with mountains of lather and rinse it over and over again then she sat in the sun against every instruction ever given her about the care of her hair and let it dry
2: context of white supremacy uh, so we are in the middle of a chapter we did not get to stop uh, at the <clears throat> exact end we'll pick up in chapter chapter 8 i guess this is kind of midpoint every day i reckon uh i'll uh give us a little update where we're picking up at midpoint of chapter 8 uh, when we get ready for the second audio segment gusty renegade context of white supremacy if you have thoughts questions to share on tony morrison's tar baby the number to dial 605 313 five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three. Hound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. You can drop an email as well. We'll nab folks uh, if they wrote in commentary on what has been shared thus far. Feel free. Uh, The snippet I played at the beginning I'll ask again if or I guess we could be alert. Uh, Toni Morrison talked about the impact in her reading about understanding the pattern of white children being cared for by black people, often, uh, often black females. And then once they are able to practice old enough, strong enough to practice white supremacy, uh, being betrayed uh, by these little racist children. Uh, and she said that that comes out in many of her books. Did we hear that? Have we seen that thus far uh, to this point in Tar Baby? And if so, where? That'd be one. And then, uh, wow, the brawl from last week, we move forward. Uh, I will double check, star six, one. Uh, folks who dialed in if they have comments, questions, things stood out uh, from this portion uh, of the reading. Do, 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 do. Uh, Mr. Demry four should be with us. I'll nab other hands as I see them.
1: Oh uh, yes, may I be hurt?
2: Yes, sir. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'll
1: uh, uh, take on your question first. Uh, okay, <clears throat> you know, I, I started to think about what would happen to Andine and Sydney after Andine had slept Margaret at the table, and I got to thinking. You know, Undine brought it up that she had abused her son. So now I was thinking if she, what responsibility she had to report, you know, Margaret's abuse of her son, and then the fact that she could risk her job. And then I thought about, I remember the washwoman who was only trying to comfort. Valerian when his father died uh, and what happened to her she got let go because uh, I guess you know having a little white boy do something that uh, the servants was doing Uh, but we got a case here of stop keeping white people's secrets and stop helping white people until we solve this problem that plagues the planet, the global, global system of racism, white supremacy. Um, in Chapter 7, when he started out, uh, uh, Tony Morrison started out, guess uh, son noticed that there was no children, only short people under 12 years of age. That speaks to the system of white supremacy that doesn't give uh, non-white children the luxury of being a child. It's too much trauma, too much uh, dysfunctionality. And she mentioned, um, I guess these were the, the gay people. Or the uh, LBGT group um, said the guys, uh, I guess, they had given up the business of being black and male at the same time. It was too difficult. So they dumped it. Um, That's, you know, a view of what was happening. I don't know if it's the author's view or son's view, maybe son's view of what's going on because he noticed that the people in New York were different. Uh, He tried watching television and it said that uh, the black people in white face, playing black people in black face, unnerved him. Uh, I guess when it said the skin, was, uh, a gray Christina, I guess, the uh, TV was black and white, uh, at that, time. and then they had this, every time you watch a TV show, they got this, uh, program laughter. So even if something isn't funny, you're hearing all this laughter. So I guess people are supposed to laugh at, uh, things that may or may not be funny. And he had a little, uh, confrontation. Well, he picked this, uh, clerk at the hotel. He had uh, cash money that JD had given him to get a room in New York. And he picked this guy out. And I guess the guy was giving him a hard time. He reached over and told him, said, brother, uh, do you want to get home tonight? This ain't your fucking hotel. And then he thought about whether or not he had made an error in judgment or not, or if this was a whole new race of people that he was once familiar with. That shows, you know, confusion because that uh, anti-blackness that, uh, desire to not want to help other blacks has been around since the beginning and it, it it's probably gotten worse that's what he was mentioning um, it seems like you know a lot of years ago we could hear people talking about how black people used to help one another uh, do things like barter or trade or uh, loan <laughs> I wouldn't advise you to loan your passport like Gideon did, the son uh, but you know, the son character is, is always in and out of trouble you know, it, it's, the people he hang around his, his friend old Frisco old no good Frisco he thinks about him all the time. and uh, He travels light. And he probably, you know, don't have much in the world. And what really gets to him is, he said, was watching J.D. pour uh, Valerian's wine and Listening to her take his part, trying to calm Odean and and Sydney to his satisfaction. She's very accommodating to uh, Valerian, and it it was kind of uh, rubbing him the wrong way. Uh, I thought at first she didn't care that much about what happened to Odean and Sydney when she took off, but I guess she sent a couple of postcards and um, but she found out that they had been let go as of yet. Um, it was interesting that a son, while he was laying there thinking about how distasteful it was to watch J.D. in the presence of uh, Valerian. He started to uh, call her out of a name, calling a superior managerial administrative clerk in a fucking loan office, a gatekeeper, advanced bitch, a house bitch, A welfare office torpedo, corporate cunt, tar baby, side of the road, whore trap. You know, for a man that loves somebody at one point, and then he's got this uh, opinion lurking in the recesses of his mind, I don't know if you can really, you know, trust. A person like that he's not letting his his true uh emotions come out and at first it was sounding like he may have been uh love struck and it was clouding his thinking and i like this sentence on page 221 where she was describing uh, I guess it was New York City said, here, pre-stressed concrete and steel contained rage, I mean anger, folded it back on itself to become a craving for things rather than vengeance. And I think that's what is happening to black people in these uh, urban situations. Uh, Cramped space, uh, uh, deplorable conditions, and that anger that you feel and the hopelessness is, is turned back onto yourself. And that's why we have a lot of, uh, black so-called black on black crimes and teenagers killing each other, uh, and other black people that, uh, can hardly think of a kind word to say to another black person. And J.D., uh, Feels quite differently about New York than son. Uh, son can see things somewhat differently. Uh, he sees it in a in a negative manner. Well, I guess a little bit more real realistic, because when he runs into uh, the woman that's arguing with the man in the street. He offers some type of uh, help for her, and <clears throat> uh, takes her takes her back home with him. I don't know if that was a good idea. And It said that uh, he spent his last ten dollars um, buying, you know, some candy and some soda pop. And uh, then the girl that he brought on made off with the chain. When they they fell asleep, woke up, she stole the money and took off. Um, I'll mute my line right there, Gus, and I'll come back and share what I got on uh, Chapter 8.
2: Much obliged, Mr. Demry. For uh, let's see, uh, Henry in Chicago. If you have commentary, you should be with us as well, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, uh,
3: green Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, on page 216, uh, it says the street was chocked with beautiful males who had found the whole business of being black and men at the same time too difficult, so they dumped it. They snipped off their testicles and pasted it on their chest. They put a they they put their weighty wigs, uh Alma, Estee, Dream and so on. Uh this is um kind of like a man not reference here. Uh being uh I think Mr. Timory Four also uh stated this too, about uh, being black and being uh, a man uh, in this uh, white supremacist uh, society is just too difficult. So they, they just opt out of it uh, according to the story. Um, the, uh, the reference of uh, ganja in uh, 218, where um, uh, Therese gave son present and it looked like you know it looked like uh ganja or marijuana or weed and uh he did he actually did a sensible thing to throw it away, so uh he wouldn't be stopped at customs um, on two nineteen the uh it says the mewings of an adolescent brutalized by loneliness for a world he thought he would never see again uh there's that repeat theme of loneliness again. Uh, paragraph below it uh, was talking about a possible future with uh, J. Dean having son's baby, and uh, the sentence that says the stomach required planning, thinking through a move long before it was made, uh, brings me back to uh, what Doctor Wilson says about you know having children and having a a uh, plan uh, well beyond their uh, infant and adolescent years. Uh, kind of made me think, th- thought about that. Uh, what else do I have here? Oh, and uh, then before I also mentioned something uh, I noticed as well in regards to uh, Jadine's experience and son's experience in New York and how much of a negative uh experience he had when he first entered New York and Jay Dean kind of felt refreshed, you know, being, you know, in New York. Um, what else uh, do I have here? Oh, um, on page 223, um, Betty, who had been into bisexuality for months, couldn't get back into the closet fast enough when son was in the room, uh... References to uh, LGBTQ uh, as it was stated in the early part of the chapter. Uh, what else do I have here? Uh, oh, uh, I saw something here on 229 where uh, uh, when Dean and son uh, didn't go to work and they were just eating Chinese food and she read true confessions to him and uh something i noticed here where it said that she read the sexy parts of the bible uh and he looked at her now what's interesting is uh most biblical scholars would say the sexiest part of the bible song of solomon which was a book that tony morrison had written like three years prior to this one so uh (laughs) that was a that was an interesting reference there um the the incident in chapter 8 where margaret was kind of uh telling valerian about oh i want to go back to uh I want to go back to chapter 7 when when sun was waiting for um jadine to come in and he had these uh uh words or these thoughts about her when he was thinking about her in the presence of Valerian. And I think uh, Mr. Demi Four also mentioned that, you know, uh, called Gatekeeper, Advanced Bitch, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's interesting is earlier in the story, and, and, if, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, that Jadeen had these same thoughts about him uh, and was calling him all kind of names as well. And what was, what was the, the common factor in it was when Sun was thinking about those negative words about Dean, it was in the presence of Valerian. Well, just like with Dean thinking about Sun, it was the same situation where Valerian was treating him very nice after he done broke into his house. So, you know, the common factor is Valerian. So it seems like we have these negative effects uh, uh, on each other when when white people are around. So there's got to be some kind of connection of why we hate each other so much is because white people are kind of directing us to that, uh, to that. You know, the system of white supremacy. You know, that that's what it's built for uh, conflict with each other.
2: conflict with each other absolutely uh much obliged oh did you have did i interrupt you sir oh
3: yeah i was (laughs) i was gonna go into chapter eight real quick oh yeah my uh, fault
2: i'm sorry let's hear it oh
3: okay uh the thing about chapter eight um when they were talking about valerian and his uh you know he couldn't believe that Uh, I think he said all these years Margaret, he thought Margaret was drunk, but he was, she was actually torturing uh, her son. And so, you know, it kind of, it kind of compelled me to believe that, you know, this is that, this is the same thing, you know, you talk about Gus in regards to uh, white people not being ignorant of racism and, you know, Margaret wasn't drunk, torturing her son she knew exactly what she was doing and she enjoyed it just like white people enjoy being racist. So that was uh, the connection that I had with that. Um, That is all I have for now in my life.
2: Done for real this time. My apologies, sir. Uh, Thank you, Henry in Chicago, uh, for sharing Mr. Demery for as well. Uh, Other folks, if you have thoughts, Questions, observations uh, from the first audio segment, uh, Toni Morrison's Tar Baby, Star 6-1. I'll keep an eye on the switchboard uh, for others. Incidentally, uh, when Jadine is talking about uh, their kind of financial situation there in New York, this book was published in 1981 again. And, and she says, well, you know, I've got basically $2,000 uh, saved. And I've got, I think she said like 5,000 in a French account. And I got my connections to White's. Uh, so, $2,000, basically, uh, with the inflation calculated and everything, 2019 uh, in U.S. dollars, that would be about $5,700, maybe a few nickels short of that. But basically, it'd be about $5,700 in the bank. Um, I don't know. If we have any folks who are New York natives uh, or you have lived in New York before, uh, how comfortable I would be with that sort of employment situation and you're trying to figure out check schemes um, that wouldn't even be workable now in 2019 or the passport. Uh, But basically $5,700 in the bank living in New York. Yikes. Uh, So the notes that I had um, almost wouldn't be possible to go into a hotel and pay cash to stay for two nights. In some spots, it it might not be uh, allowed right now, especially everything going cashless, as they say. Uh, But it starts off, uh, son is in New York. He's going to get the hotel room and wait for Jading. Uh, He picks out a clerk with a pecan pie face who looked friendly. That sounds like our general pattern of uh, thinking that because someone is non white or black person that they might be more receptive or helpful to us than whites sometimes sometimes no <clears throat> uh but he continues and he says uh <clears throat> he re- or some of you already mentioned boys and love's identification badge, son surprised himself uh he threatens him uh brother, there's that brother again. Another illustration of Gusty saying I'm not into all the brother talk. Uh, but I read this and I thought, wow, the anti-blackness on so many levels, like the, the treatment of the clerk who is rude to him. And then he threatens him it's like, wow, white people mistreat us every day. And, you know, we don't issue a violent threat like you had better give me a room, you know, a do right by me or I'm going to uh, kill you. And the clerk, I mean, he easily could have just, you know, do what security? <laughs> like we got a threatening Negro here, and this could have all ended, you know, quickly. Uh, But just the way that system of racism uh, and how callous uh, we treat each other uh, all the way around. Uh, Let's see. Um, And white people are to blame for all of this, even the the treatment of the clerk's treatment of the black person, that all of that is how white people have trained us to treat and think about other black people. Uh, Let's see. So. Jadine is going to go hang out with him, even though she's worried about Sydney and uh, Andine's uh, employment. Are they still going to be there? Are they going to be fired? And you know what's Sydney and Margaret's revenge going to be? Uh, let's see. Uh, I agree. Uh, Therese giving Son this going away present. And it looked like cannabis, so he threw it away. Smart fella, especially uh twenty twenty. I certainly don't think that would be a correct uh path to take. Um the whole what's the outgoing order? When he went through his whole I guess appraisal uh of Jadeen uh with the mocking boys, superior managerial. Blah, blah, blah. I won't reread the whole thing. Uh, I think some of the, not knowing yard man's name, I thought that one especially uh, where she says who called a black man old enough to be her father yard man and who couldn't give a shit who he himself was and only wanted his name to fall away in her restrung brain so she could remember it when the cops came to fill out the report. Wow, And that's brilliant writing, I will add, by the way, Uh, all the way through. When she continues, she gives a little hyphen and then breaks down what she'd be telling the cop, the brilliance of Toni Morrison. But wow. Uh, And I mean, that right there happens so frequently in the system of racism where whites, they can pluck any victim of racism and have them in that role and train them to be uh, the clerk in the loan office, to be rude and nasty to non-white people. They can and do operate in that manner all over the world have for centuries. That's what domination looks like and we end up getting frustrated and upset with that non-white person like the fella at the hotel, pecan-faced fella uh, as opposed to understanding this is the system of racism. White people are to blame. White people are the problem. They can replace, you know, that fella at the hotel or J. Dean anytime they want to or Sydney and Andine, yard man. yeah, Anytime we want to fire you for stealing apples or anything else. Uh, Let's see. I thought it was uh, fascinating him the way that he talked about hoping or that he was insulting and rude to her and hoping that she would not unchain his love. He had been by himself. Lonely. Uh, and not being connected to anybody. I think that is a common theme in the system of racism, white supremacy, having non-white people being isolated uh, and in a point where they just end up being numb and, and not having folks that they are concerned about and particularly other black people. Uh, let's see. Wow. When jading begins talking about New York. I thought, wow, if we have any uh, black females who currently live in New York City or have, you can please share a thought. When Nadine gets to chatting here and she says, this is home, she thought with an orphan's delight, not Paris, not Baltimore, not Philadelphia, this is home. The city, talking about New York, had gone on to something more interesting To it than black people who had fascinated it a decade ago, but if ever there was a black woman's town, New York was it. Huh. Is New York a black woman's town? And if so, how? Maybe I'm not the best person to even begin to unpack all that, not being a black female and having never resided uh, in New York, but. This is the Empire State in New York City, a black woman's town. I can't even. Is this the same New York City where Tawana Brawley lived? Same, same, same New York. I don't. Uh, I can't even begin to unpack uh, or the unpacking, I guess, is to read. You just continue reading. She says, no, no, not over there making land use decisions or deciding what was or was not information. But there, there, there and there, sapping snapping whips behind the teller's windows. Now, that is an interesting metaphor. Kicking ass at Con Edison offices, barking orders in the record companies, barking. Hospitals, public schools, they refused loans at the household finance, withheld unemployment checks and driver's licenses, issued parking tickets and summonses, gave enemas, blood transfusions, and please, lady, don't make me mad. They jacked up meetings in boardrooms, Turned out luncheons, energized parties, redefined fashion, tipped scales, removed lids, cracked covers, and turned an entire telephone company into such a diamond head of hostility. The company paid you for not talking to their operators. The manifesto was simple talk shit, take none. I will stop there. Really? Do black females, they own and run? I mean, what, uh, Bill de Blasio, his wife, is she, is her town? He's just hanging out? Like, really? I don't know. Maybe I needed to be in New York in 1981 to see, you know, what, what, what in the world? I can certainly understand maybe black, uh, seeing black people in some of these roles, most of which are not powerful positions, Uh, I don't know how many black people get to go in, black females in particular, get to go in and uh, hold up uh, meetings, staff meetings and all of that. But I mean, if it's handing out parking tickets and giving enemas and blood transfusions and that working at the hospital, that's, you know, very permissible in a system of racism, white supremacy, particularly in such a large city that's going to require so many people to do so many things. Uh, Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. The whole conversation was so fascinating in hearing the way that Jay Dean, and that is supposed to be, that's the, the, some of the reports that I've read, reviews of this book, and they talk about how Jay Dean, she's a child of the city, she loves the city, she's not really comfortable back at the island, and she's fretting and complaining, she falls in that tar pit when they go out, this is her environment, and it's the exact opposite for son, he loves the island and being outside, where he's described as wild, uh, in the city, not so much. Uh, but even still, uh, processing <clears throat> Jadine's interpretation of, of the city and what they're doing. <clears throat> she writes, they fall out of Max's Kansas City at 4 a.m. They would promenade Third Avenue from the 50s to Soho. They would fight landlords and drink coffee in the village, eat bean pie on 135th uh, paella on 81st Street. They would laugh in the sex boutiques, eat yogurt on the steps of 42nd Street Library. Uh, and it just goes on, you know, eating different things, going to different shops to drink. Uh, just a lot of consumption, uh, really, uh, going to these places uh, and hanging out, sightseeing, being a tourist. just uh, I could, this, would, this would be a lot of Instagram uh, and social media. You could do and take photos and, oh, look, we were here and we got something here. You could do a lot of the photo taking. But, I mean, I don't really know the value of any of this uh, in a system of racism. Why? unless the only thing I can chalk this up is show-offism, uh, Mr. Fuller. That's what this sounds like. It would just be show-offism if we move fast-forward this to 2019. As I said, it would just be stuff to Instagram and put on your account to brag. Look where we were. Oh, we got chocolate chips at Grand Central Station today. Oh, look at the drinks that we got. That's what it would be, just to brag to other people that, you know, we could do this and you all can't. Look at the life that we have and aren't you envious? Show offism. Mr. Fuller talked about that. Um, Next, let's see. Already gave the breakdown of the money. Let's see. Jadine laughed in his ear and called him an unskilled. Sickle cell anemia motherfucker. I highlighted that for a few reasons. This is after she got him a job working at a bar, and he, I guess he hadn't done this before, and he dropped a bottle of gin and messed up some drinks and wasn't very good, I guess, uh at the job. Uh wow. The anti-blackness. Wow, on such a personal level. <laughs> I mean, wow. Um, let's see. I thought it was significant when Sun was talking about how laughter became his only response, his only weapon was laughter. Even when he was in the war, uh, he would just laugh. Anything that happened, a grenade exploded too soon or not at all, he would just laugh. And then even that left where he no longer even had the ability to laugh at things that were happening around him. Blackmail privilege. Thought of that quite a bit reading this chapter where, uh, Jadine is able to go out and get a job and feels like New York is a black woman city and, uh, son can't even get a hotel. <laughs> black people are looking at him cross-eyed, trying to get, uh, looking at him cross, trying to get a hotel room, even when he's got the money to pay for it. He can't get a job. Uh, she gives great language in describing some of his attempts later, uh, to get working. But I mean, it's, it. <laughs> Wow, system of white supremacy on display. Everything Dr. Wellsing says. Uh, Dr. Curry already had the mention for the man not uh, in terms of how it operates. I mean, you can see it right here in 1981 and what's being laid out in this novel. Uh, black male privilege? Really? Really? Hmm. Uh, next, it sees Undine and Sydney seemed unsure of their jobs, but no steps had been taken to let them go. It seemed Son was less sympathetic to Undine's plight because she had acted to shuffle footed I have never heard that term before come on Toni Morrison shuffle footed I'm going to have to use that one Uh, if anybody has heard that one before you can let me know but shuffle footed keeping her white lady's secret and then she says like it was hern in quotes and loving her white lady's baby like it was hern too now that was one spot where I thought uh oh Betrayal perhaps. Betrayal. Michael, we haven't really met him yet, so we don't know, but he seeming like it could be, or at least it's kinda of whispering in that direction. Uh, and then we got keeping white people secrets. Uh that was talked about before, although I definitely think in a workplace situation that is tough because, you know, you don't wanna lose your job, how you're able to support yourself, that can be a right tough thing. Sydney certainly seems concerned about that, like, Oh my gosh, are we gonna be fired and, you know, out in the streets and Woo. Uh, uh, but continue with that same paragraph and much less sympathetic. This is uh son, much less sympathetic to Sydney because in 30 years he had not split Valerian's skull. 80% of both Sydney's and on conversation was the caprice and habits of their master. They are victims uh, of racism, white supremacy, um, they go from this and uh she she admits that she still likes Valerian doesn't see him as a racist uh she goes immediately he put me through school and you know white people uh able to help They can do lots. He didn't get her aunt and uncle a permanent house, permanent residence. I guess he got them some social security or what have you, but he could have done uh, substantially more. Mr. Valerian, Margaret Street, white people in general. Uh, I did think it was an interesting reversal because uh, son is described as wild. So many times in the book that this conversation, there recounting the Christmas brawl and talking about how wild, really wild that was uh, the reversal there. Uh, let's see. Jadine and son must have been in love because they never once turned on the television. My goodness. That's a sign of of love. I guess they didn't have all the, the wonderful Netflix and power and real housewives of L.A. Maybe they would have made some different viewing options. They forgot to buy cigarettes or alcohol. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Now, again, now contrast Jadine valerians paid for her schooling new york city is her oyster she is doing it lots of job options and connects for son a veteran discharged not with honor or humor there wasn't a permanent adult job in the whole of the city for him so he did teenagers work the man not work on occasion and pieces of a grown man's work come on Tony Morrison, the brilliance. And that is total Dr. Welsing. That is total the man not. You are not going to be a man in the system of white supremacy. You can do teenagers work. You can do pieces of a grown man's work. Uh, let's see. Don't even know if they'd be working New Orleans for black people anymore after Hurricane Katrina. Out of here. Uh, let's see. There was a little pilfering money. That was about all. Some small-time truckers gave him brute work. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) Brute work. Uh, You sometimes call people brutes, uh, or it would certainly imply this is just going to be physical labor. No thinking involved. Uh, Pick up, you know, these 500-pound blocks and just move them all day long. This is just for for brutes, for savages. Uh, There was brute work lookout works that sounds like something criminal and sometimes he dropped payoffs when asked but none of it could hold his attention and after uh and one afternoon while he was helping a trucker unload boxes on broadway and 101st street he heard a commotion in traffic and this is where it goes to the uh confrontation with the young girl noma i think is her name make sure i'm getting nomo yeah that's it uh with the confrontation where she's fussing at this uh, West Indian black guy who seems kind of confused about the whole thing. The sentence where she describes this young girl, Nomo, she says the girl's face was as tight and mean as broccoli. Uh, it, it, I couldn't swallow it, I guess, because I'm such a big broccoli fan. I just bought broccoli today. Uh, I had broccoli yesterday for dinner, uh, eat broccoli all the time. I don't think of broccoli as mean. So I had a tough time with that one. I I spent a good portion just trying to imagine uh, broccoli as tight and mean. And I just don't think of broccoli as tight and mean. Maybe that's just me. Eat more broccoli. Uh, Let's see. And then she gets to the end of that paragraph. She word whipped the old guy down the street as he left. Son goes out uh, to see her. He extends his arms for hugs. She uh Morrison writes, she looked at him with hatred older than lava. Come on, man. Uh let's see. They all go to the store, they get potato chips, A&W Root beer, and three payday candy bars. I had a total uh the hate you give flashback uh all we needed was cheetos uh for the update instead of potato chips cheetos maybe a cheetos chicken sandwich uh the hate you give black people eating horrible food uh we go from the islands where they had all that fresh fruit all that time black people getting fired for stealing apples and avocados and talking about mangoes and fresh pineapple and all this fresh fruit and good food and we come to new york to get potato chips root beer and candy bars Uh, Let's see. Chapter eight, I took the words right out of my head. Uh, Henry in Chicago, white people cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Uh, Henry, excuse me, Valerian, not ignorant about uh, the abuse even happening in his house, making excuses for the marks uh, that he's seen. Uh, You know what's going on. It's your house. It's your wife. It's your child. You're not ignorant. Not ignorant about white supremacy racism either. Uh, Let's see. And again, all of this again going to my point. White people do not care about children. Uh, Let's see. The wording, I guess I'll leave it there, that she uses to explain Margaret when she says uh, the word delicious she didn't think it hurt too much uh, even Valerian when they're having this dialogue is is pointing out some of these words like delicious not too much like he repeats them I don't know if he's thinking this uh, or if he's uh, if this is actually being said like he's repeating this back to Margaret as as a conversation as they kind of think out uh what what she's doing what she's confessing to yeah the whole paragraph here where she says uh mm I can't go back to read all this to get the delicious part in, but at least the Mark part, I can get that in because it's all in the same thing. It's a big paragraph. She says he thought about that, how or whether to stop looking at her and look instead at his hands. He couldn't make up his mind and he couldn't shift his gaze. But he thought about it while she was saying it's funny, but I would see the Mark and hear him cry. But somehow I didn't believe it, it hurt all that much. Mark, she called it. She saw the Mark. Don't think it hurt all that much, like a laboratory assistant removing the spleen of a cute but comatose mouse. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Just picking out the words, because white people do that with black people all the time, using that sort of language, to even describe it as delicious, talking about abusing your own child, burning your own child, a mark. Didn't think it hurt all that much. Same type of way that they minimize and talk about the abuse of black people. And that word delicious, uh oh, delectable negro. Absolutely. I'll stop there. Any other folks' uh, commentary they want to make sure they get in before we shovel off to uh, audio segment number two? Uh, yes, I'm Mr. Demry Four. Okay,
1: uh yeah, that part you said about delicious, you know, just a delicious pin stab into sweet creamy flesh and that was a word delicious. I think that that's probably close to how they white people feel when they practicing racism. it's it's, it's like something delicious to them. They just really, really enjoy. It. Um, yeah, okay. So Let's go. Um, you covered, uh, a lot. I was going to mention the way that the young, uh, woman's eyes were looking the, um, uh, Uh, like lava, you know, the anti-blackness, the hate that's going on. And, okay, Uh, I'll I'll find this. Oh, I wanted to say that part about uh, son served in the military, probably suffered, I don't know if I said this, post-traumatic stress. He you know, because he said he cried in the bathroom for a long time about all the bombing in Vietnam, he was wounded in service, which he should have had a service connected uh, disability, which would have meant income for him. He, although he was in infantry and served in Vietnam and was wounded, he was discharged dishonorably, Uh, he had to use uh, Um, I guess M-16s that was malfunctioning. You know, that's probably something that they found funny. Give all the uh, non-white and black troops uh, weapons that uh, malfunction on them. And uh, I said that uh, son unorthened her, unorthened J.D. So that gives us a clue to She's probably a scared little girl inside, a scared little orphan girl, and it's looking for security in the arms of uh, some man, or several men, and a white man preferably. I'll mute my line on that, Gus. Thanks, for taking the call.
2: Wonder what happened to Rick. Send her that seal skin coat like I would think Rick is. Anywho, uh, any other folks' comments? Uh, certainly if we have any New York residents, man, if you have a thought, is New York City a black woman's town? What? Can I be heard? Uh Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir.
3: Uh... At the end of chapter seven, uh, one sentence actually stood out for me, and I was I was pondering on it. It says, uh, "It was difficult to be sober, to take anything other than themselves seriously, but they managed occasionally." I looked at that and I thought about, you know, was that a definition of not being sober, uh, which is to not to take. Anything other than themselves seriously, and I um, kind of thought about that, like because you know, you know, when you're not sober, you know, you're basically not really taking yourself seriously. I know mean, you, you know, constantly say it over and over again about being, you know, about sobriety and yeah, you know, it's like in this uh, in the system that we live in, we don't we can't afford to be you know not sober so uh that kind of that kind of stood out for me and uh going into chapter eight uh references to sloppy candy kisses and uh sweet creamy flesh uh kind of reminds me of the you know valerian being you know his family being uh, owner of a candy factory you know so uh candy you know candy references in this one. Uh, with Valerian's family owning a candy factory, so uh, that's uh, that's all I have for now in my life.
2: Excellent points, Valerian and the Candy Empire. And I even I uh, know some of the reports they carry that all the way back to slavery, the Caribbean. You wouldn't have uh, or slavery and all of that with rum, sugar cane long, uh, established connection with white people terrorizing black people, and there being something, some sort of sweet reward uh, for doing all of this, something delicious about mauling and abusing black people, literally, figuratively. Uh, With all the name-calling that's going on in the book, most of it seems very much directed at black people, like there really hasn't been unless um y'all can, you know, interrupt me and, and correct if I'm in error, but most of it has been black people name calling other black people in the texts. Jadine and uh Sun and Shufflefooted. I don't know if that's name calling, but it's close in my opinion. Uh, uh that's Son talking about uh Sydney and Andine, but a lot of name calling uh black people and other black people, uh the bluest Dye deals with anti-blackness. I think that's a big theme uh, here as well. Uh, the clerk, the fellow that worked at the hotel that talked to Sun at the beginning of it. Major theme. I don't, With all of the abuse that whites heap out on black people throughout, there really is not a whole lot of abuse and name-calling directed at white people. And I'd say that's pretty standard to my real-life experience, on the page, in real life. Uh I reckon we can push off, unless other folks have anything else they need to get in, we'll get ready to push off to chapter, two, uh, second audio segment. We're still in chapter eight. Um, again, kind of keep in mind as we are reading, are we hearing any sort of reference? I think we already got a little bit uh, of betrayal, uh, where a black person is as nurtured, cared for a white person, and then being uh, betrayed by them. Maybe Dean and Sydney, even though that's not a white child, but I mean, hey, they've been working there for quite some time, so we'll have to see how all that you know unfolds. Um, if we have any folks who are New York residents, if you want to dial in during the second audio segment uh, and give feedback on whether or not NYC is a black female's town, I would absolutely love it. Even if you're listening to the archives, love it, especially from folks who are or have been New York City residents. Uh, we'll pick up we're in Chapter 8, Context of White Supremacy. This is The Grandcester. Toni Morrison, her 1981 novel, Tar Baby, audio segment number two.
4: Larbe de la Croix became a house of shadows. Couples locked into each other or away from each other. The murmurings of whose hearts rivaled the dreaming daisy trees. Jadine and Son off together plotting, Sidney and Andine walking on glass shards, afraid, angry, sullen, snapping at one another one minute, soothing each other the next. Valerian stayed mostly in his room. The greenhouse remained untended, the mail unread. Silence pressed down on the dahlias and cyclamen, for there was no diet of music anymore. Sydney brought pieces of dinner to the table, but no one was there. Jadine and son foraged in the refrigerator, accomplices. Margaret appeared for breakfast coffee only. Sidney took trays of half-heartedly prepared sandwiches to Valerian's room and brought them back untouched. Margaret told her husband in pieces. Little by little, she spooned it out to him, a sip here, a drop there a fleeting sentence in mid-air as they passed on the stairs. It was not as often as you think, and there were long, long periods of happiness between us, in between. But he had stepped inside his bedroom door. Another time she said, Don't try to persuade yourself that I didn't love him. He was more important to me than my life, than my life. She had to repeat the phrase, for his back was receding fast. He never directed those gloaming eyes her way. She told him in bite-sized pieces, small enough for him to swallow quickly, because she did not have the vocabulary to describe what she had come to know, remember. So there was no way or reason to describe those long, quiet days when the sun was drained and nobody ever on the street. There were magazines, of course, to look forward to, but neither life nor time could fill a morning. It started on a day like that. Just once she did it, a slip, and then once more, and it became the thing to look forward to, to resist, to succumb to, to plan, to be horrified by, to forget, because out of the doing of it came the reason. And she was outraged by that infant needfulness There were times when she absolutely had to limit its being there, stop its implicit and explicit demand for her best and constant self. She could not describe her loathing of its prodigious appetite for security, the criminal arrogance of an infant's conviction that while he slept, someone is there, that when he wakes, someone is there, that when he is hungry, food will somehow magically be provided so she told him that part that was palatable, that she could not control herself, which was true, for when she felt hostage to that massive insolence, that stupid trust, she could not help piercing it. Finally, Margaret entered his room one night and locked the door behind her. I've just spoken to Michael, she said. Valerian could not believe it. She could call him? Speak to him? Say his name? Did she think it was business as usual? He said he sent two cables telling us he couldn't make it. Two. Neither one was telephoned to us. I asked him to call BJ Bridges. Obviously, we don't need any guests at New Year's. Valerian was speechless. She was going to go on about it, chatting about things just as if nothing had happened. The blood had not dropped out of his eyes yet, so this still was not life. He could get through it because it was some other thing he was living. How dare you call him, he asked hoarsely. How do you dare? He isn't damaged, Valerian. He isn't. Valerian said nothing. He only stared at her. She was even lovelier now that her hair had no spray in it, that it was not tortured into Art Deco now that it hung according to its own will and the shape of her head. And she wore no makeup, little charming eyebrows instead of styled ones, and the thin top lip was much nicer than the full one she ritually painted. How can you know that? How can you know what is damage and what is not? If you don't know the difference between... 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 He stopped. He could not say it. How do you know the difference between what is damaged and what is healed? I know. I see him. I visit him. Believe me, he's fine, finer than most. They were both silent for a few moments, and then Margaret said, You want to ask me why? Don't. I can't answer that. I can tell you that I was more successful in keeping myself from doing it than not. When it did happen, it was out of my control. I thought at first it was because he was crying or wouldn't sleep, but then sometimes it was in order to make him cry or to wake him from sleep. I can't hear this, Margaret. You can. I have done it, lived with it. You can hear it. She seemed strong to him. He was wasting away, filed to nothing by grief, and she was strong, stronger, talking about it as though it were a case history, an operation, some surgery that had been performed on her, that she had survived and she was describing it to him. You are disgusting. You are, 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 are monstrous. You did it because you are monstrous. I did it because I could, Valerian, and I stopped doing it or wanting to do it when I couldn't. Couldn't. Yes, couldn't. When he was too big. When he could do it back. When he could tell. Leave me. He's fine, I'm telling you. He's all right. Please leave me. She understood. Understood completely and without another word she unlocked the door and left. Another time she waited for him at the breakfast table and said, You are angry because he didn't tell you. Why didn't he tell me? Valerian had not thought of that yet. He had been living with just the picture of the boy under the sink and had only been hearing the la-la-la, la-la-la, but now he realized that was part of his anger. Why didn't he tell me? he was probably too ashamed. Oh, God. I think he is still ashamed. Valerian's hands were shuddering again. Why does he love you? he asked her over his shuddering fingers. Why does he love you? Because I love him. Valerian shook his head and asked her a third time, Why does he love you? He knows I love him, she said, that I couldn't help it. Valerian shouted then at the top of his throat. Why does he love you? Margaret closed her blue-if-it's-a-boy blue eyes. I don't know. Now the tears came. Not all at once. Not in the rush of blood he anticipated, longed for. Rather, a twilight glimmer, a little mercury in the eyes that grew brighter and brighter. That was the beginning, and he knew there would be more of them. For now, he would settle for this bright burning. Margaret opened her eyes and looked into his. Hit me, she said softly. Hit me, Valerian. His shuddering fingers went wild at the thought of touching her, making physical contact with that skin. His whole body recoiled. No, he said. No. Please. Please. No. You have to. Please, you have to. Now he could see the lines, the ones the makeup had shielded brilliantly. A thread here and there and the roots of her hair were markedly different from the rest. She looked real, not like a piece of valerian candy, but like a person on a bus, already formed, fleshed, thick with a life which is not yours and not accessible to you. Tomorrow, he said. Perhaps tomorrow. Every day she asked him, every day he answered, tomorrow, perhaps tomorrow. But he never did, and she was hard-pressed to think of a way to ease their mutual sorrow. On the first day of the year, Margaret pushed open the kitchen door. Andine was there as she always was. The braids Margaret had snatched were folded quietly now across her head. Margaret, having had the dream she ought to, felt clean, weightless, as she walked through the doors and stood at the oak table. Andine was napping, her head resting on the back of a chair, her feet resting on another When she heard the grunt of the door hinges, she woke at once and stood up, alert. No, no, sit back down, Andine. Andine shoved her feet into her moccasins and continued to stand. Can I get you something? she asked, out of habit, and out of a need to do what was wanted of her and get the woman out of the kitchen. No. No, thank you. Margaret sat down and did not seem disturbed by the painful silence Andine was keeping after the refusal. She looked past the black woman's silhouette to a place in the shutters where the sky showed through. "'I knew you knew,' she said. "'I always knew you knew.' Andine sat down without answering. "'You loved my son, didn't you? "'It was more a statement than a question.' I love anything small that needs it, said Undine. I suppose I should thank you for not saying anything, but I have to tell you that it would have been better, Andine, if you had. It's terrible living in the same house with your own witness. But I think I understand it. You wanted me to hate you, didn't you? That's why you never said anything all those years. You wanted me to hate you. No, I didn't. You... You wasn't a whole lot on my mind. Oh, yes, I was, and you felt good hating me, didn't you? I could be the mean white lady, and you could be the good colored one. Did that make it easier for you? Andine did not answer. Anyway, I came in here to tell you that I'm sorry. Andine sighed. Me too. We could have been friends, Andine, like at first when I used to come in your kitchen and eat your food and we laughed all the time. Didn't we, Andine? Didn't we used to laugh and laugh? Didn't we? I have it right, don't I? You got it right. But you wanted to hate me, so you didn't tell. There was nobody to tell. It was woman stuff. I couldn't tell your husband, and I couldn't tell mine. Why didn't you tell me? I mean, why didn't you scream at me, stop me, something, something? "'You knew, and you never said a word. "'I guess I thought you would let us go. "'If I told Sidney, he might tell Mr. Street, "'and then we'd be out of a job, a good job. "'I don't know now what I thought, to tell the truth, "'but once I started keeping it, then it was like my secret, too. "'Sometimes I thought, if you all let me go, "'there won't be anyone around to take the edge off it. "'I didn't want to leave him there all by himself.' you should have stopped me. You should have stopped yourself. I did. I did stop myself after a while, but you could have stopped me right away, Andine. Andine put the heels of her hands on her eyelids. When she removed them, her eyes were red. She blew out a breath, and she was old. Is that my job, too? To stop you? No, it's not your job, Andine but I wish it had been your duty. I wish you had liked me enough to help me. I was only 19. You were, what, 30? 35? Andine tilted her head and looked at her employer sideways. She raised her eyebrows slowly and then squinted. It was as though she saw Margaret for the first time. She shook her head back and forth, back and forth in wonder. No, she said, i wasn't 35 i was 23 a girl just like you margaret put her forehead into her palm the roots of her sunset hair were brown she held her head that way for a moment and said you have to forgive me for that andine you have to you forgive you don't ask for more you know what andine you know what I want to be a wonderful, wonderful old lady, Margaret laughed a rusty little bark that came from a place seldom used. Andine, let's be wonderful old ladies, you and me, huh said Andine, but she smiled a little. We're both childless now, Andine, and we're both stuck here. We should be friends. It's not too late. Andine looked out of the window and did not answer. Is it too late, Andine? Almost, she said. Almost. At some point in life, the world's beauty becomes enough. You don't need to photograph, paint, or even remember it. It is enough. No record of it needs to be kept, and you don't need someone to share it with or tell it to. When that happens, that letting go, you let go because you can. The world will always be there. While you sleep, it will be there. When you wake, it will be there as well. So you can sleep, and there is reason to wake. A dead hydrangea is as intricate and lovely as one in bloom. Bleak sky is as seductive as sunshine, Miniature orange trees without blossom or fruit are not defective. They are that. So the windows of the greenhouse can be opened and the weather let in. The latch on the door can be left unhooked, the muslin removed, for the soldier ants are beautiful too, and whatever they do will be part of it. Valerian began going back to his greenhouse. Not as early as before. Now he waited until after the breakfast rain. He was still telling Margaret, tomorrow, perhaps tomorrow, but he did not change anything in there, didn't sew or clip or transpose. Things grew or died where and how they pleased. Ile de Chevaliers, filled in the spaces that had been the islands to begin with. He thought about innocence there in his greenhouse and knew that he was guilty of it, because he had lived with a woman had made something kneel down in him the first time he saw her, but about whom he knew nothing, had watched his son grow and talk, but also about whom he had known nothing. And there was something so foul in that, something in the crime of innocence so revolting it paralyzed him. He had not known because he had not taken the trouble to know. He was satisfied with what he did know. Knowing more was inconvenient and frightening, like a bucket of water with no bottom. If you know how to tread, bottomlessness need not concern you. Margaret knew the bottomlessness. She had looked at it, dived in it, and pulled herself out, obviously tougher than he. What an awful thing she had done, and how much more awful not to have known it. Which was all he could say in his defense, that he did not know that the postman passed him by. Perhaps that was why he had never received the message he'd been waiting for. His innocence made him unworthy of it. The instinct of kings was always to slay the messenger, and they were right. A real messenger, a worthy one, is corrupted by the message he brings. And if he is noble, he should accept that corruption. Valerian had received no message, but after waiting so long to receive, know, and deliver its contents, imperceptibly he had made it up, made up the information he was waiting for, preoccupied himself with the construction of the world and its inhabitants according to this imagined message, but had chosen not to know the real message that his son had mailed to him from underneath the sink, and all he could say was that he did not know. He was guilty, therefore, of innocence. Was there anything so loathsome as a willfully innocent man? Hardly. An innocent man is a sin before God, inhuman and therefore unworthy. No man should live without absorbing the sins of his kind, the foul air of his innocence, even if it did wilt rows of angel trumpets and cause them to fall from their vines." CHAPTER NINE "'This is a town,' Jadine shouted. "'It looks like a block, a city block, in Queens.' "'Hush up,' he said, squeezing her waist. "'This is not only a town. "'It's the county seat. "'We call it the city.' "'This is Elo. "'No, this is Ponce. Elo is a little town.' We got 14 miles to go yet. Now she understood why he wanted to rent a car and drive to Florida. There was no way to fly to Elo. They had to go to Tallahassee or Pensacola, then get a bus or train to Ponce, then bum a ride to Elo, for no buses went out there. And as for taxis, well, he doubted if either one would take them. Bumming a ride didn't seem to be a problem in his mind. Her luggage held all he had, and when they got off the bus, she saw eight or ten black men lounging there in front of the depot, as Sun called it. Sun talked to one of them for at least five minutes. They waited another thirty minutes at the candy machine until a black man named Carl appeared, driving a four-door Plymouth. He drove them to Elo, asking pointed questions all the way. Sun said he was an army buddy of a man named Soldier that they were out of Bruton on their way to Gainesville. Thought he'd look in on old soldier, he said. Carl said he knew of soldier, but had never met him. He had never seen a cashmere sweater with a cowl neckline or shakrell boots and didn't know they could make jeans that tight, or if they did, who but a child would wear them since no honest work could be done in them. So he looked in the rearview mirror with disbelief, Nobody dressed like that in Bruton, Alabama, and he suspected they didn't in Montgomery either. He followed Son's directions and dropped them off in front of a house Jadine supposed was in Elo since Son paid the man and got out. Where are the 90 houses? I see four, asked Jadine, looking around. They're here. Where? Spread out? Folks don't live all crunched up together in ELO. Come on, girl. He picked up the luggage and, grinning like a groom, led her up the steps. A framed door was open to the still March morning. They both stood in front of a screen door through which they could see a man sitting at a table with his back to them. Son didn't knock or move. He simply looked at the back of the man's head. Slowly the man turned his head and stared at them. Then he got up from the table. Son opened the screen door and stepped in with Jadine just behind him. He didn't move closer to the man. He just stopped and smiled. The man did not speak and did not smile. He kept on staring. Then he raised his hands, clenching them into fists, and began to jump up and down on both feet, stamping the floor like a kid jumping rope. Sun was laughing soundlessly. A woman ran in, but the man kept on jumping, pounding the floor. The woman looked at Sun and Jadine with a little confused smile. The man jumped higher and faster. Sun kept watching and laughing. The man was still jumping rope, but not smiling or laughing, as Sun was. Finally, when the stamping shook a lamp to the table's edge, and a window banged down, and the children were peering in the doorway, the man shouted at the top of his lungs, "'Son! Son! Son!' to the beat of his crazy feet, and kept on until son grabbed his head and pressed it into his chest. "'It's me, soldier! It's me!' Soldier wrenched away, looked him in the face, then ran to the back window. "'Wahoo! Wahoo!' he shouted, and came back to march four step around the room. Two men came to the front door and looked in at the marcher and then at the visitors. Soldier's clownin', said the woman. Soldier's clownin', said the children. Good God a'mighty, that's son, whispered one of the men. And then it stopped. Son and soldier hit each other on the head, the hands, the shoulders. Who bought you them skinny shoes? Where's your hair, nigger? He asked her if she would mind staying at Soldier's house with his wife, Ellen, while he went to see his father. Jadine demurred. She had run out of conversation with Ellen ten minutes after it started, but son urged her, saying he had not seen old man in eight years, and that he didn't want to bring someone his father didn't know into his house the first time they met in all that time. Could she understand that? She said yes, out in Soldier's yard near the mimosa. But she didn't understand at all, no more than she understood the language he was using when he talked to Soldier and Drake and Ellen and the others who stopped by, no more than she could understand or accept her being shunted off with Ellen and the children while the men grouped on the porch and, after a greeting, ignored her, or why he seemed so shocked and grateful at the same time by news that some woman named Brown, Sarah, or Sally, or Sadie, from the way they pronounced it, she couldn't tell, was dead. But she agreed. God. Elo. He left her there and walked alone to the house he was born in. The yellow brick front looked tiny. It had seemed so large and sturdy compared to the Sutterfield shack he and Cheyenne had, the one he drove a car through. It wasn't as big as Ondine's kitchen. The door was unlocked, but no one was home. In the kitchen, a pepper pot was simmering, so he knew Old Man wasn't far and wouldn't be long. His father, Franklin G. Green, had been called Old Man since he was seven years old. And when he grew up, got married, had a baby boy, the baby was called Old Man's son until the second child was born, and the first became simply son. They all used to be here, all of them. Horace, who lived in Gainesville, Frank G., who died in Korea, his sister Francine, who was in a mental home in Jacksonville, and the baby girl Porky Green, who still lived in Elo, so soldier said, but went to Florida A&M on a track scholarship. They had all been in this house together at one time with his mother. Only a few minutes had passed when Old Man climbed the porch steps. Son waited, standing in the middle of the room. The door opened. Old Man looked at Son and dropped his onions on the floor. "'Hey, Old Man. How you been doing?' "'Save me. You got back.' They didn't touch. They didn't know how. They fooled around with the onions and each asked the other about his condition until old man said, Come on in here and let me fix you something to eat. Not much in here, but it ain't like I had notice." I ate something over the soldiers. You was over there? I wanted to hear about you before I came by, said son. Oh, I ain't dead, son. I ain't dead, he chuckled. I see you ain't them money orders sure helped. You got them? Oh yeah, every one. I had to use some of them, though. Some of them? They were all for you. Why didn't you use them all? I couldn't do that. I didn't want to raise no suspicions. I just cashed a few when I couldn't help it. Shit, old man, don't tell me you still got some. They in there? He nodded toward one of the two bedrooms. Porky in school, you know. I had to help her out, too. They went in the bedroom. An old man took a white owl cigar box from under his bed and opened it. There was a thin pile of envelopes bound by a rubber band, some postal money orders held together with a paper clip, and a few ten and twenty dollar bills. Eight years of envelopes. These were for you, old man, to take care of you. They did. They did. But, you know, I didn't want to be going over there to the post office every month cashing them. Might set folks to talking and turn the law out on account of that other business. So I just took a few in every now and then. Quiet, you know. Old man, you one crazy old man. You been to Sutterfield yet? No, nope, straight here. Well, you know Sally Brown died here a while back. They told me. Be at peace. Hope so. She slept with a shotgun every night. Huh. Every night. Well, she burning up down there now, her and her nasty daughter. Don't say it, old man. Yeah, you right. Shouldn't rile the dead. But you know I was more scared of Sally than the law. So was I. Law don't care about no dead colored gal, but Sally Brown, she slept with that shotgun every night waiting for you. Made my skin crinkle to walk past her, and she just about lived in church, moaning. Stopped me from vespers altogether. I couldn't sit there listening to her berate you. Can you feature that? Pray every Sunday and hold on to a shotgun every night. Where's the boy? Gone away from here. His folks, too. He get his eyebrows back? Never did. Guess his folks figured he couldn't hide nowhere around here looking like that. Sally was looking for him, too. I didn't see his face. All I saw was his asshole. That didn't have no eyebrows either, I bet. I should have made him some with a razor. They laughed together then, and an hour or so passed while Son told what all he'd been doing for the last eight years. It was almost four when Son said, I didn't come by myself. You with a woman? Yeah. Where is she? Over the soldiers. Can she stay here? You all married? No, old man. Better take her to your Aunt Rosa's then. She won't like that. I can't help it. You be gone. I have to live here. Come on, old man. Uh Uh-uh. Go see your Aunt Rosa. She be mad anyway you don't stop by. Scripture don't say anything about two single people sleeping under the same roof. Son was laughing. What you know about Scripture? I could have lied and said we were married. But you didn't lie. You told the truth, and so you got to live by the truth. Oh, shit. That's right, shit. She's welcome in my house all day in the day. Bring her back so I can meet her. She's special, old man. So am I, son. So am I. All right, all right, I'll go get her and bring her by. Cook up something, then I'll take her by Aunt Rosa. That suit you? Suit me fine. Son stood up to go, and his father walked him to the door. When son said, be right back, old man said, wait a minute. Can I ask you something? Sure, ask it. How come you never put no note or nothing in them envelopes? I kept on looking for a note. Son stopped. How hurried all those money-order purchases had been. Most of the time he sent a woman out to both buy and mail them. He'd done it as often as he could, and sometimes five would be sent from one city and none from any place for six months. How hurried he had been. I guess I didn't want nobody to read him and know where I was. But it was too lame an excuse to continue with. Is that why you kept the empty envelopes, too? Yeah, they had your handwriting on them, you know. You wrote it. That part, anyway. Franklin Green. You got a nice handwriting. Pretty, like your mama. See you, old man. Go by Rosa. Tell her you're coming.
2: Context of White Supremacy. And that will do it for this week. So we'll pick up next week, chapter nine, chapter nine. We are making great time with the book. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, if we picked up listeners in the New York area and you have a thought, is New York City, the black female's town? 605-313-5164. The code 564 four, pounds Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Please do not wait till the last minute if you think you have uh, questions, observations to share. Uh, if we have not heard from you, uh, we can get you on right now as opposed to waiting until, you know, clock is ticking down and then deciding that you have uh, commentary or a question that you just have to share star six one to make sure that you uh, get in let's see uh, Mr. Demry four and Henry in Chicago should be with us and let's see I'll give a heads up uh, our caller 3098 I think we missed you the first time around uh, if you have commentary proceed last four digits, three, uh, oh, okay.
5: Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, good evening, everybody. Good evening, guests, good evening, callers, good evening, listeners. Hope everybody's having a constructive evening. Um, uh, first question, first off the bat, let me um, say, as a New York lifelong resident, no, New York is not a woman, a black woman's town neither in nineteen eighty one or two thousand nineteen from my experience. But I do know that a great deal of um the positions that Miss Morrison has described have been filled by black women. I don't know if that qualifies as a black women's town. Um a uh, slight correction, if I may, that um you mentioned Tawana Broly in the first the first uh, segment. That happened upstate New York and uh, it was the upstate New York. I don't recall the town, but anyway that was uh upstate. Um I would ask, I w I wanna offer a couple of um observations that I've, I've been um following as part of the thing as a qu- as questions. Um JD, I'm going to read it just directly from my notes. Janine, representative of uh, cohesive, keeping the streets and the child in, from conflict with each other. And I wonder about the significance of the chaos that erupted once Janine falls into the tar Um uh, And then I um, wanted to talk about the, I want to ask about the, Holly Robinson, I think you asked about in last week's um episode. I also noticed I, I don't I noticed a direct contrast contrast that she wrote about that Miss Morrison wrote about in the description of the faces and line and the sun and the Demeter and their values of their um their value systems. Some value of fraternity and um the learning and valuing learning industry so those those are some of the questions that i i wanted to to offer for this this um session is other things i'll i'll i have to compose and send an email in because i i've been keeping i've been keeping up with the book pretty pretty uh but um frequently, but I, I do, I, I will say I, I'm enjoying this book greatly. So I want to, I want to offer that. And I want to just answer that question that you said about, you know, directly about the New York, New York um, black woman experience. Cause I also found that that passage very um, interesting, but I, I don't find that um, it's not, it's not a black woman's town from my experience and my observation, and I'll meet my line. Thank you.
2: Much obliged, and thank you for the correction. Strive for accuracy. Say that uh, all the time. If we have uh, any other New York residents, definitely chime in, give us uh, your view. Uh, Let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary, proceed. Andy Hurt. Uh, greetings, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, greetings. Um, the,
3: the conversation between Valerian and Margaret again, uh, going back into uh, the previous chapter, where Margaret was trying to convince Valerian that their son Michael was actually okay. After all the years of torture and abuse, kind of reminds me of how white people tell us, um, you know, get over slavery. Slavery hasn't affected us. Well, not just slavery, but just the system of white supremacy itself. And how they try to tell us and convince us that we're okay after being tortured. uh and abused and subjugated and terrorized uh so margaret kind of uh she's kind of like that metaphor of that symbolism of what white people try to tell us that we're okay after being abused and tortured uh the the uh the scene of margaret and odine in the kitchen um what was interesting was Margaret was asking Odin for forgiveness and it just immediately, I, I thought of Amber Geiger <laughs> the and this whole thing of forgiveness. Uh, it was, it was so, so interesting when, when I, when I saw that and I read that, I, I that was the first thing I thought about. Um, and, uh, And I was thinking about this, too. Uh, You were talking about New York uh, and being a black woman's town. Uh, Isn't the statue of J. Marion Sims in like a New York hospital? And for those who don't remember uh, from Medical Apartheid, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, J. Marion Sims was was the... father of gynecology because he was experimenting on black slave women uh correct me if i'm wrong about that but i think that is in new york so uh if i'm corrected you know that's you know what i'm thinking about when you know you mentioned that new york is a black woman's town you have the statue of a doctor who experimented on black slaves um uh correct me if i'm wrong on that but that's all I have
2: on in my life. Much obliged. Good, sir. Excellent point about the statue to Dr. Sims. We talked about medical apartheid, one of my favorites all time, Harriet Washington. I know there was a big controversy, and they have been doing a lot of moving around of monuments. Unless it got moved, that statue was in Central Park. Not you know behind a woodshed or someplace, but in Central Park, the statue for Dockerson. Now again, they've had you know controversy and all that. I had to double check to see if it got moved. If it did, that would be really really recent. But I think it might still be hanging out in Central Park. Uh, other other folks uh, who dialed in with commentary. Yes, we have to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh Mr. Demry for, and then we'll get. I think I heard someone else. Well, Mr. Demery, four, go ahead. Okay.
1: Yes. <clears throat> well, we have. Uh, oh, I wanted to mention uh, the caller. I guess Henry uh, mentioned about the statue. That brought something to my mind. See the uh, <clears throat> the country that uh, France gave a present to the United States. Uh, you know, before the original uh, Statue of Liberty. It was a black woman with chains on her. And as a gift from France, they sent it to America, but, you know, these uh, races, uh, they they didn't want a a black woman statue, you know, in this country, so they sent it back to France. And Uh, New York being a black woman's town may have been a reference to that. I don't know. That may be stretching it. But when they went to ELO, uh, son left her uh, at Soldier's house until he went to talk to his dad. I guess, you know, his dad is... People in this particular town uh, are are hyper-religious looks like the lady they talk talk about whether you're dead or not that's the news if miss uh, sally brown died then <clears throat> that's news and she slept with a gun she lived in the church but <laughs> slept with a gun so <clears throat> it's kind of a little play on faith there she was uh very religious but then uh, that only goes so far she knew that she had to have some firepower out there in case things got a little out of hand um, his father was called old man since he was 7 years old that's kind of odd to me and then when he got married and had a baby boy <laughs> they called him old man's son And then the second son, I guess that was him, became simply son. Now, that's, you know, a lot of rubbish, you know, but these nicknames and uh, all this nonsense is the kind of thing that goes on in these uh, backwood uh, rural areas. I know because I came from one. And uh, it says the law don't care about no dead colored girl, <clears throat> but uh, he was more afraid of her than the law. But then now he's a religious uh, fanatic too because he don't want to let um, son and JD stay in his house because they're not married and um, you know, it's some people that still abide by that nonsense and like Son was saying, the scripture don't say anything about two single people sleeping under the same roof. So I knew it was going to be a cultural shock for her going down into a one-horse town and she's basically uh educated in Europe and had lived and was raised by these rich white people, so it's probably more fireworks to come but i'll I'll mute my line on that thing
2: he called religious fanatics called it called it nonsense uh sons father having some scruples and not wanting uh, these unwed folks, this unwed couple to stay under his roof. Wow. Blasphemous. Mm-mm-mm. Much obliged uh, Mr. Demry for blasphemy aside. Um, star Six One. Don't wait till the last minute of uh, other folks dialed in. Uh, if you have a question or a comment that you want to make sure you get in uh, before we wrap things up. Uh let's see, looking at my notes. Let's see. Oh, wait a minute. Did we miss was there another did we miss someone? Another caller have a comment that they wanted to get in.
5: Yes, um, it's um three oh zero three zero nine eight um chiming in again to um add on to um Mr Henry's from Chicago. Yeah, um the the statue of J. Marion Sims was actually moved from the the spot in Central Park to another spot in Brooklyn, um another you know another borough in the um cemetery where he was buried in um, Greenwood Cemetery, if I'm not mistaken that's the last update with that um Thank you
2: much obliged, new I know they had been uh, there have been protests uh for uh years uh to have it moved and calling it out as a monument to white supremacy of which there are many and I think Dr. Sims has statues in other places as well, but that is not the point. strive for accuracy said that again uh let's see the portion when margaret she says she's talking about. She she has time. What am I gonna do? I've got all this time. I'm 19. I'm married to a rich, powerful white man. I'm in the Caribbean. What am I gonna do? Mr. Fuller talked about that. He said a core component: what it means to be white. What is your purpose for being here? How do you use your time and energy? So you got all this power, and you can live to be 150, and be in great shape while you do so. For what purpose? In order to do what? To mistreat niggers? Because that's all we got here. Mistreat. Can't mistreat the niggers, Or they were doing that. Uh, we'll just mistreat whoever else is around. Mistreat, mistreat, mistreat. That's what everything becomes. And violence. Violence. What's your whole purpose? I don't even know what to do with myself. I can get up and read magazines and waste time and a whole lot of other silliness. But fundamentally, it just comes back to mistreatment and violence. And to have this come from a white woman Oh, man, I think that is so important. Uh, Let me get my notes. I'll go in order. She says just once she did it a slip and then once more and it became a thing to look forward to. What do I do with my time and energy? This is what I enjoy and look forward to harm, mistreatment, terrorize someone. To look forward to, to resist, to succumb to, to plan, to be horrified by, to forget. Because out of doing, because out of the doing of it came the reason. And she was outraged by the infant needfulness. There were times when she absolutely had to limit its being there. Stop its implicit and explicit demand for her best and constant self. Tony Morrison, brilliant writing there, but I mean, wow, that in my view, I keep saying white people do not care about children, whammo, what an indictment, and to put that with the centuries of whites doling off their children on black people and bragging about it, didn't the song Mammy, they bragged about that for years, the help smash hit movie? wet nurses and all of that, how many white guests we've had on the program who talked about having a white, excuse me, a black nanny take care of them in all the different movies and what have you I don't want to take care of this child, find someone else I want to be about mistreatment practicing racism, I don't want to be at home, breastfeeding and all that nonsense, got things to do racism to practice next oh man, Valerian said nothing, he only stared at her, she was even lovelier now that her hair had no spray in it and that it was not tortured he goes on with, with all of that at this moment, her confessing to the brutality it, she looks even lovelier next uh, oh I thought now this is where I was going before I said I'd go in order I've said consistently this is not uh, patriarchy. We don't have white male patriarchy. We certainly don't have black male privilege, black male patriarchy. I've said the system of white supremacy, in my view, reflects a matriarchy. The white woman, whether she works or not, the resources go to her. She has the longest life expectancy, least likely to be a victim of violence. All, sometimes all it takes is the tears of one white woman to burn down a whole town. Uh, There are numerous illustrations uh, of that, the power uh, that white women and increasingly more power. You see that with the whole Me Too movement uh, and what have in wielding even more power in the system of white supremacy, although my conclusion is still the same equal partners. uh, But white women. Wow. You cannot minimize their role. And wow. What does she say? Tony Morrison she writes this is Valerian he says of Margaret the white woman she seemed strong to him he was wasting away filed to nothing by grief and she was strong stronger talking about it as though it were a case history an operation some surgery that had been befor- performed on her that she had survived and she was describing it to him hmm. that is the white woman In my view, the architect of white supremacy, equal partners, nothing to to gripe about. But I mean, wow, this is what an analysis of white women's role in racism. Uh, Continuing, I did it because this is uh, Margaret talking. I did it because I could Valerian and I stopped doing it or wanting to do it when I couldn't. Couldn't, he asks. Yes, couldn't. When he was too big, when he could do it back, when he could tell and i i love the analysis about margaret insisting that he's fine he's healed he's fine it's it's, it's no problem that is exactly what racists do with black people non white people that they have terrorized oh no what are you talking about he, he's castrated but it's it's fine it's fine he's he's all healed it's it's no problem what are you talking about we we compensated everybody uh from Tulsa and it's it's fine everybody's healed we have reconciled and isn't that what they say we have reconciled and moved forward that is consistent uh, let's see man this whole dialogue between Margaret and Andine uh, she says uh, talking about why she's actually chiding her why didn't you say something Earlier. Why didn't she speak up? Oh, yes, I was. And it, you felt good hating me, didn't you? I could be the mean white lady and you could be the good colored one. Did that make it easier for you? The audacity of this white? woman well, that's what I mean. The audacity of this white woman. It's your fault. I'm going to try and put some of this culpability on you because you could have stopped me. I was this young, impressionable 19 year old girl and you're some old hag, nigress, colored woman. You should have intervened. Part of this is on you. Didn't it feel? Yeah. And you could just make me play the role of me being the mean old white woman. And you're the dutiful, good nigress. The audacity. Ah, uh, Let's see. And I love the black self-respect, Andine, If they go through it all this, and why didn't you tell? Why didn't you? Uh, and Undine finally she calms herself. She takes a moment to breathe. We talk about that on workplace racism all the time. She takes a few breaths. Is that my job to question? To stop you? Question. What do we say on workplace? Stay in the question lane. Brilliant from Undine. What does the white woman say? No, it's not your job, Undine, but I wish it had been your duty. I wish you had liked me enough to help me. We talk about white people demanding that we help them all the time. I think Mr. Demery Ford just said it uh, about 30 minutes ago. uh, Stop helping white people as best we can in the system of white supremacy. And then we have this white woman demanding. uh, Why didn't you help me? You see me over here torturing this child. Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you stop me? Some of this is your fault. She says, uh, I wish you had liked me enough to help me. I was only 19. You were what, 30, 35? I point this out as being significant because this is such a stale component of white supremacy where black people are thought to be much older uh, than they are. Uh, This plays out lethally sometimes with situations like Tamir Rice where he's thought to be 20, 25 years old. Uh, Michael Brown Jr., lots and lots of different instances where uh, black people uh, are not assumed to be young and innocent. You are a menacing, hulking, you know, quote unquote, adult, even if you are very, very young. Um, and on Dean, she says, no, I wasn't 35. I was 23, a girl just like you. Margaret put her forehead in her palm. The roots of her sunset hair were brown. She held her head that way for a moment and said, you have to forgive me for that Undine. You have to now it's mandatory. It's mandatory. And Dr. Welsing used to talk about that quite a bit. It is not mandatory that we forgive white people for practicing white supremacy, racism. She says she doesn't even talk about that as an aspect of healing from trauma, forgiving the perpetrator, the maldoer. And for what exactly? Anyway. uh, And then she goes on from that tackiness to, we can be friends. What does that even mean? Am I no longer working for you? How are we going to be friends and I work for you? I mean, <laughs> the tackiness of racist woman, racist man is boundless. Uh, let's see. And in within all of this, we're talking about rich white people. If Valerian was really, I'm so ignorant about all this. I didn't know about all this. What to do about all this. Yum, yum, yum. My son. He could have hopped on a plane and went to see his son. He could have called. he didn't do any of that. He sat around and moped in his so-called innocence and man talk about the brilliance of Tony Morrison uh, where she writes she says uh and it, well, wait, a minute, this is more on Margaret she says, and there was something so foul in that, something in the crime of innocence, so revolting it paralyzed him. He had not known because he had not taken the trouble to know. He was satisfied with what he did know, knowing more was inconvenient and frightening like a bucket of water with no bottom. If you know how to tread, bottomlessness need not concern you. Margaret knew the bottomlessness, the white woman. She had looked at it, dived in it and pulled herself out obliviously tougher than he. The white woman tougher than the white man. Oh, my. Tony Morrison and then she comes over and she says and all he could say was that he did not know he was guilty therefore of innocence was there anything so loathsome as a willfully innocent man hardly an innocent man is a sin before god inhuman and therefore unworthy no man should live without absorbing the sins of his kind the foul air of his innocence even if it did wilt rows of angel trumpets and cause them to fall from their vines. Now I will insist as I have for years, white people cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Uh, They are not uh, innocent uh, and they certainly are not uh, ill-informed. But I do think that that is so common, them claiming that they didn't know or were ignorant about some uh, detail of white supremacy racism uh, and that being used as a cover, their alleged innocence, that I think is totally repulsive, even though I think in the system of white supremacy that does not exist. That is just a really ridiculous excuse. Uh, But that is used so frequently. There's no reason for uh, Valerian to be ignorant about this abuse uh, that was happening in his house and I love the way she talked about that Michael was communicating, he was telling him, being under the sink right there, something is wrong, you were content not to investigate whatever, just going to go along with all this and and everything's fine and then pretend, oh I didn't know, I didn't didn't know that something was awry here white people can't even do that in relation to black people, but I didn't what do you mean? Something happened with Tamir Rice or something? The lead in the in the water in Flint? What do you mean? Something? They can't even pretend that one. They try to use that trite excuse with the police all the time. What do you mean, the police are doing something to the niggers? Please. Uh, we are about at the end. I'll double check quickly. Uh, if folks had any other uh, thoughts, questions they wanted to get in uh, before we conclude? Can I be here? Henry in Chicago?
3: Yeah, I wanted to reiterate your stance about <clears throat> the, the power of uh, white women in the system of racism and in the in the context of this story. Uh, you, you all have to just look in the world of politics. Um, what was it, 54% of white women voted for Donald Trump? Uh, and also, too, uh, about two years ago, uh, a senator, a black, uh, non-white black senator from Texas, Al Green brought up uh papers of impeachment for Donald Trump. Nothing happened. But now recently, Nancy Pelosi, uh suspected racist white woman, uh, now wants to impeach Donald Trump. So now there's an impeachment process. So this is what uh this is an example of the power of white women uh, within the system of white
2: supremacy. Uh, I will meet my line. White women. It sounds like we had some weeping white women here too. Margaret trying to shed a few tears to act like she was really shook up about this. Oh, I did miss one one of the notes that I had at the beginning of the chapter. When they get to ELO at the depot and there are rows of black males laying out at the depot, I said, whoa, <laughs> whoa, if New York is a black female's town... If ELO is the place where this is the black town and can't get wait to get to ELO, whoa, this does not seem like the black male's town because they are just laid out like bums at the train depot. <laughs> like, oh, my Lord. I did think that that was important. And I haven't heard any place named in this book that is the black male's town. Even when they were back in the Caribbean, all you had was Sydney. He didn't even have a house uh, for his wife. They're just working for racists and child abusers. Uh, yard man just got fired stealing apples. Uh, It didn't exactly sound like the black male's uh, town or island either. So I don't know. We'll have to uh, keep a listen out, keep an eye out as we continue reading. Uh, Any other comments folks need to get in before we conclude?
5: Yes. May I be heard real quickly? Yes, sir. All right. I want to um, offer another um, analysis that I found online from a um, the good, Goodreads.com site from our uh, uh, user name and Mars. And I'm reading, it's rather obvious that all the characters, black, white, and mulatto, all, were They are Inextricably stuck to who they are, no matter where they are, they cannot escape themselves, their past, their childhoods, in fact, we're all Tar Babies. I want to ask, is that an accurate assessment? I'll be more line. Thank you.
2: We'll have to think about that metaphorically uh, as we move through. Uh, are these characters stuck in some sense uh, to certain aspects of themselves, character flaws maybe? Uh, are, are they all the Tar Baby in some form? Uh, I do know Toni Morrison herself said that Jadeen is the tar baby, and twice now uh, in the text, I think she has been referred to as tar baby. It happened uh, this week too, even though it was in an insulting manner. Well, tar baby is supposed to be an insult, but uh, Sun was using it as an insult and calling her the tar baby, but that's at least twice in the text that Jadeen has been referenced as uh, tar baby and. Morrison said she's she is the tar baby of the book, but we'll have to see. Maybe there's a that element is applicable to all of the characters. We'll pay attention as we proceed. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow for workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, the compensatory call in Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged for all the folks participating. Uh, I am enjoying the book as well. Uh, Quite a bit of info about what, the analysis of white women alone. Yes, absolutely. It is something to behold. Uh, we'll pick it up here next Thursday, same time. Man, I was a little bit nervous today. I was <clears throat> getting work done downtown uh, Seattle and was coming back. It was early afternoon. I'll be able to get home. No problem. Going by the stadium to get home and I see a bunch of suspected racists clad in neon green hair and Seahawks paraphernalia I do not keep up with uh white people's ball games in the region uh and so it's whoa the Seahawks have a home game oh my lord the traffic uh the these games start at 5 so the traffic going to the stadium i e downtown begins very, or I should have the alcohol and the traffic and blah, blah 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 blah. All of that starts very early, uh, in the day for people if you, you know, have not been around all that. But wow, I was a little bit nervous, uh, like, oh no, am I gonna get stuck in traffic and held up? I've never had that be a problem in the whole time that I've lived here, uh, with Seahawks interference, uh, with something it almost happened twice. I thought I was gonna miss uh, my yoga class, uh, last week that I was teaching. Uh because the Seahawks, thankfully, they were not playing here, white people in their ball games uh with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. uh you can tailgate sober in addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver doing all we can to minimize contact with the amber geigers of the world uh If you are driving. We're going to make sure we're not on the cell phone, again, just trying to do the little things to stay as safe as possible under extremely dangerous conditions. White supremacy. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other victims of white supremacy. Help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time, we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
1: Nigga, you so brainwashed.
2: I'm a victim, your brother. problem. you a victim. I'm Shut a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition.